Welcome to the Nevers More Podcast, where we talk more about the Nevers. I'm Lee. I'm here, joined by my buddy Spencer. Spencer, how are you doing tonight? Doing well, man. How about you? Good. As promised on the Nevers More Podcast feed, this is a Mangum Talks podcast. We are here to review episode one of HBO's The Nevers. Spencer, you and I reviewed a lot of shows in our time. We've talked mm-hmm. about a mm-hmm. lot of content. We have never, we have yet to discuss what we think about The Nevers. I'm interested to hear your just initial First brush, uh, what are your takes on episode one? There are signs of brilliance in here. There are signs of things that I will enjoy. They are caught in what is present, a kind of filled-to-the-gills jumbled mess. There's almost just too much going on here, particularly for the first episode, that it is so easy to get lost, and it is so easy not really to find a thread to hold on to, to get that kind of caring to focus on the really good parts. So I'm hopeful still, but at present... This is just, it's so diluted with how much they've thrown at us at the start, there isn't much that I can really get invested in. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. My take is very similar. I think it's, I think it's a confused show. Um, there's stuff to like, but I think right now it's a little, it's a little muddled. It's a little confused. I think that take aligns with what a lot of the, the reviewers, you know, the folks out in the zeitgeist are saying about the show. Hopefully it tightens up. We get, we get six episodes, uh, in this first run and it was, they're doing the walking dead thing. We're getting like a split season. So we're mm-hmm. getting six episodes now, six episodes later, uh, elephant in the room. I think they split the season up because this is a Josh Whedon vehicle. Josh Whedon has been yanked <laughs> off the show, uh, mm-hmm. From you know, for a lot of reasons, uh, a lot of them seem pretty valid. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Josh Whedon directed, wrote this show, um, this episode. He produced it. Um, so right now we're still getting a lot of Josh Whedon. Josh Whedon, if you don't know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Just think, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly, Dollhouse, the he's Avengers. He's done a lot of good things, um, but you know, obviously, has uh, you know had some problematic behavior. So he's off the show. So I think that's why they're splitting up. We're going to get six episodes now, six episodes later. But if you're just joining. Spencer and I, for the first time, we are uh, two just normal folks who love to talk about podcasts or talk on podcasts about television shows. Um, And we started talking to each other about uh, TV shows, just calls after every Game of Thrones episode. We decided, what the hell, let's put it in a podcast. So we Mm -hmm. are the Mangum Talks podcast channel. This is the Neversmore podcast. It is a podcast on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. If you never checked our podcast out before, go to mangumtalks.com or you can check out the GOT Got Questions podcast, where we review Game of Thrones, Mangum Talks TV, where we review a smattering of television shows, which include Chernobyl, Succession, Mandalorian, a bunch of the good ones, uh, and Mangum Reads, which is like a, a digital book club that you can check out. So mm-hmm. check those out if you've never joined us before. But uh, if you are joining us for the first time, happy that you're here. We're going to talk about the Nevers. We're going to do this every week. We're going to start with a uh, we're gonna start with a recap. We're gonna do best line of the episode. We're gonna do some favorite character arcs, and we're just gonna talk some segments toward the end. Um, I'm sure our segments will sort of grow and evolve as we understand the show more. They typically do. Where yeah, we, we start learn what with works. Like, yeah, we start with these plans of like, oh, well, let's do this segment, and then like, you know, it'll it'll transition right as we as we start to figure the show out and we start to focus in on certain attributes of the show. Uh, but yeah, so that that's I think that's a good, pretty good intro to start into episode one. Spencer, do you know what the name of episode one is? The Touched. The Touched. Okay, so let's do just a, a little bit of an overview of this world, and I'll okay. try to start. And you know, as always, Spencer, jump in if I screw something up. So, what from what I can tell, we got ourselves a Victorian X Men. Um, it is basically 
a world in which the Victoria, I think it's set in the Victorian era. We get mm-hmm. in two timelines right now, 1899 and 1896, three years prior. And there was an event. We don't know what the event mm-hmm. is. It looks extraterrestrial to me. Looks like it a does. spaceship. It very looks much like looks a... like a spaceship that we get at the end of this episode. And it looks like magic fairy dust came down all over <laughs> London. Unclear if it went anywhere else. I guess just on London, magic fairy dust started touching people in certain places. And all of a sudden, those people, quote, touched, have a power um, or some attribute that is sort of different than uh, your standard uh, run-of-the-mill human. Mm-hmm. And it, these touched folks now are sort of just left in a world where they're a little bit different. It's um, in that respect, I'm not sure it's a new story. Uh, we, we, we this is very well tread ground when it comes to this. I mean, the, we the, had that a lot, lot right? <laughs> the The idea of people with special abilities and emerging in a society that's not ready to tolerate them is something that has been done in various settings in various ways many times before. Directly in the Victorian era, no. I mean, the Victorian area is a very popular place for any story to occur nowadays. It seems like every every other third show occurs during this period. But bringing kind of an X-Men, Watchmen storyline to that feels at least vaguely new, or at least has some potential new ground to tread. Spencer, question like, mark for you. Um, do, do you think maybe there's like some set sharing going on? Do you think like yes. when Bridgerton's yes. done, it just kicks over to the Nevers? Oh, God. <laughs> if, it truly does feel like every other new show that's coming out today is set in this kind of, you know... George, the Georgian through the Victorian through the Edwardian kind of era. And there's, yeah, like you said, I'm sure there are some set sets that they've built that are now making bank and selling themselves out to various shows. What What do you think spurred that? Do you think it was like a Downton Abbey thing that got that going? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, Downton Abbey wasn't necessarily the first, but it was one that massively popularized that kind of period and that kind of, you know, historical set piece drama. I mean, they've always existed in British cinema. They've always been very popular there. But in terms of an international focus on them, Feels like it's been kind of like the last few years. Yeah, I agree, and I don't know if I don't like it. I mean, I, you know, I did really enjoy Bridgerton. Uh, that was kind of like the other one, other new like Victorian show that we've got in twenty twenty one. I liked that a lot. Liked it for very different reasons that I may or may not like this show. Obviously, a very different show. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't dislike the period. I'm just starting to get a little tired of it with new well, media. Bridgerton was distinctly set in its period. It's doing alternate history in terms of how it deals with that period, but it's very much a story about that age, done from its own perspective and everything else. This is telling its own very modern story, but decided to putting it in a Victorian setting. And I don't yet know why. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And so Magic Fairy Dust comes down from a spaceship. Uh, That's a sentence I just said, by the way. (laughs) You did! That's a that's a real alien, sentence for this podcast. Magic fairy dust came down from an alien spaceship. <laughs> alien Tinkerbell flies over. I mean, it, 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 let, let's this this is both the beginning and the end that we get this. So let's let's get a firm grasp on what happened up front. Is that yeah? Start of this episode, we don't see what occurred. We right. just have people look up at the sky. We hear thunder. And we transition immediately to three years later. At the end, as you said, we see what very much appears to be an alien spaceship. It is either consciously like seeding; it's like Tinkerbell spreading fairy dust. That was going to be my question for you. Yes, yeah. good, good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is this random, or are they targeting people? It's not clear because it seems to me, and I think I'm curious your thoughts that the ship comes apart by the time it's done. That it doesn't seem that the ship survives intact. What it's doing is that because it is, you know, unintentionally on a one-way trip. It was sent as like you know a remote pod to break apart, to spread whatever this is, and then, you know, fade into nothing? 
or was it effectively dying when it was coming to orbit and so decided this to do this as his kind of last act? But it doesn't didn't look like to me that the ship was surviving in any way to escape back out of low Earth orbit. No, and like my question is, is there like a big like crash like <laughs> did, did this thing just like crash in like London somewhere? Do we have like a big crash site? Um, and if so, is it like is this fairy? Is it like radioactive? Is this like a Chernobyl situation, what? Spencer? Like <laughs> do we have magic fairy dust everywhere in the crash site? And what makes it all the harder to tell is that the moment after this happens, after you know the the alien fairy dust, which we're, that, that is now become going to become trademarked for the show, we're calling it oh, alien <laughs> fairy dust going forward. Uh, rains down, and various people are touched by it, including yeah. some people that we haven't seen necessarily demonstrate abilities yet. Um, Penance it, is a good example. We I don't think we've seen Penance. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, it. And also the uh, the guy the, bro- the brother of the woman of the woman who's running the orphanage he seems like he is directly affected by it, even collapses from it. Um, yeah, yeah, he did get touched too. So that Augustus was Augustus Binlow. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting thing that we we saw. Like, and I hope I wonder if we're going to get more of that scene of the scene of the magic fairy dust coming off the spaceship well, and hitting people because it was hitting people and it seemed to be hitting people in certain places because Mary yes. Mary Brighton who has the magic voice it hit her throat. Yeah. So there's probably something there. And Miss uh, Peninsula Dare, she seemingly, seemingly like takes one on the top of her hand or something, and she talks about she can feel electric currents or something ever since then. And then um, Augustus seems like he gets you know hit on the side of the head and passes out. So who knows? But what's interesting and, is and, 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 and right, all yep. of those. But and then we have Amalia over here, right? Yes. Like, so we could, we, I think we can have a whole conversation about like, oh, it's touching Mary this way and Penance this way. And Amalia seems to be a different breed. Like yeah. whatever happened to her seemed to me to be different. We can get to it. But anyway, sorry, yeah. I cut you off. No, no, well, well, I, I want to end on Amalia. Because Amalia, I think we might agree, is the one with the most complete beginnings of a story arc this episode. I think she's the one we spend the most time with before we're done. I think um, she's our main character. Like I I, I'm, so too, I'm yeah. on the HBO like cast of characters for the Nevers, and they've got Amalia True, boom, number one, front and center. Not not surprising given her focus in this episode. But what's interesting is that after this happens, after the ship seems like it's physically coming apart, like what it's spreading is almost decaying itself as it's breaking apart to atoms. It vaguely disappears. We hear what it seems like a boom, and then everybody immediately transitions to where they were two minutes ago as if nothing happened. Right. As if they have no memory of what occurred. So if this thing impacted somewhere in London, maybe no one's just even aware of it because they've lost the memory of it even happening. They, we have people yeah. describe it. They describe it as if it is a mystery that they have no idea what occurred. Exactly. They, they, I don't think they know about the ship. It doesn't seem that way, but they do seem to know the specific date that people started having the powers because yes. that gets brought up in our... Uh, meeting of old white men that we get to. Um, <laughs> yes, that, yes. Um, so I guess, I, you know, yeah, so these are, uh, this is the world, I guess. I guess we're just dealing with Victorian X-Men. It did, There is a comment that comes up um, that the people who seem to be touched, who who have these powers, and mm-hmm. let's, let's get their language right, because it's not yeah, powers. It, what do they call it? turns. They're turns. Yeah, they call them either the touched or the afflicted, both of which are fair terms given how some people seem like they made out pretty well from this. And other people seem like they got really damn screwed by this. Sure. Um, but they generally call them whatever their abilities, or whatever their unique now physical traits are the turns. Yes. So it seems like the people who got the turns are the people without the power in society. It was women and it was the, the few men that it were that, that, that got this 
mm-hmm. were not the powerful man. I think we got people of color, people who didn't have money or whatever. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so that's a dynamic that we're dealing with, right? And, yeah. and now the old white men don't like this. It seems to be like a leveling up of society in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And and we get a we get a, a scene and we get some indications that the powers that be in London, old white men. Um, are wanting to push back on this. They, they want to fight back against all of this, the shenanigans and all these powers. It, yeah, it, it said, we are addressing some very modern issues through a Victorian setting in terms of the, the those that are touched, afflicted, whatever you want to refer to it, are very much the people who are out of power. They're much the people that are on the margins of society. And the central tension that appears to be occurring in this show is the idea of how a society can effectively accommodate all people even though they are different and even though that they are in some ways their even existence is pushing and stretching what are viewed as acceptable societal bounds now the fact that that's occurring in 1899 london just indicates just how much more those bounds are being stretched these are old white men that are talking about the boer war in terms of the historical era that we're in right now um yeah but um yeah do you want to go to you want to go to recap let's go into the recap all right I will. St- so, if you never joined us before, I'm going to do a recap. We're going to talk uh, through each scene. I'll where I've got some dialogue written. We'll we'll talk about that because we're trying to piece through some of the important pieces of dialogue so that we can hit our um, our segment uh, of best line of the episode. A little tough on episode one to, to to figure out what should be best line of the episode. Being <laughs> we don't honest know with what's Spencer, because exactly, I don't know what the hell is important. But anyway, we're gonna we're gonna limp our way through this thing. Let's start with the recap. We start with the flashback that we talked about. It seems to be folks getting ready in the morning. Walking out in the street, great orchestral piece plays. I can already tell I might have a lot of qualms with this show. The score is likely not going to be one of them. I I would say that my favorite scenes of this episode are the very first and the very last. I think that's those were honestly the moments that the show gave me, okay, you're capable of something. I'm interested to see where you go with this. Um, everything yeah, in between. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but that those are the, those are um, background explanatory scenes. They're done really well. I like them. They're my favorite scenes of the episode. I'm like you there. But then the question is, what are you going to do with that, right? What are you going to do with this knowledge that you're supplying us, that these people were touched through some sort of extraterrestrial event? What's going to happen? But anyway, we get back to the recap. Great orchestral piece plays. We follow Amalia True. Strong name. I'm going to throw that out there. like the name, Amalia True. This is Laura Donnelly's character. I believe Laura Donnelly is going to be the lead actress in this show. Fair bit. Um, she walks up to a bridge, looks like she's about to kill herself, and bang. Uh, this seems to be some sort of either flashback or maybe a dream or partial dream for Amalia. Unsure. But we smash cut to her waking up. Does Amalia always sleep on the floor, Spencer? Is, are we meant to believe that? It, we've never seen her in a bed. We've seen her several times now laying on the floor at the start of various scenes. So, yeah, I'm willing to now just put my name in blood that she sleeps on the floor. It's three years later, so we're now dealing 1899, another great orchestral piece plays. We're six minutes into this show. We got two good orchestral pieces, Spencer. So yep. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with that. I like that. Um, no worries about the budget on this show. They got some budget, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, she gets up, starts to get dressed, cuts to Penance Adair. Um, Penance appears. I, I'm a little unsure about what Penance's actual. Here's my guess as to what her turn is. It's uh, she has like power of her hands, meaning she can like make things. And when she touches things, she understands things better than everybody else. Is that close? I mean, hers is almost willfully the most ambiguous description. The way it plays out is it seems that she has an advanced understanding of technology. But her description of it is, is that she can see energy and potential energy and where it wants to go or settle. 
so that can kind of play out. I don't like. Way. I I, I want to strike that from the canon. I I, I remember hearing, I hearing that. That sounds so stupid to me. I, like, I I had a profound. I can see where sigh. energy wants to go. Ugh. We just had a profound sigh. I, I, when she said that, and she's saying this to a collection of people, they're like legitimately asked, like, well, "What are your abilities? We want to know." She said that, and like, no, no, no. Try again. Try again. No, no that that <sighs> is overly poetic bullshit that you can use however you want going forward on this show. Yeah, can we leave that on the cutting room floor? Penance walks around, and her room is dope, Spencer. Penance has a very interesting room. They're all getting ready, it appears. They're in the same building. I think later we call this the orphanage. This is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Professor X's school for the gifted that they're, they're all <laughs> It in. is that. It is that in Victorian London. <laughs> Literally, their Professor X is in a wheelchair. Yeah, this is, uh, this is what we got. Um uh, and it looks like, um, well, the montage continues. London is waking up and we see Amalia and Penance show up at the house of the Haplishes. Haplishes? Yeah. I think that's right. Uh, uh, the daughter Myrtle Haplish. 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 Yes. Yeah. Um, I put, let's put another syllable in there. Haplish. I believe they're looking for the daughter, daughter Myrtle mm-hmm. Haplish, who has some sort of turn. Amalia knows about this. This is part. So Amalia's turn is... Like I say, it's different than everybody else because I think it's like multiple things that she's got going on here. Because one is it seems like she has these visions that tell her things. Like one of the things is where other people who have been touched uh, are uh, or or who uh, other people will be or will where they will be and if they are struggling because it seems like she's going to find people who are not great situations. And Myrtle is one of those. Yeah, she, um, it, it's referred right. to as like ripplings. It's like they, they, they refer to it as ripplings, or that she's a prognosticator, and she even disguises it as PTSD flash forwards kind of moments. But as you said, they seem inherently, though they're seeing into the future, they seem inherently built around the touched and where they may be or what will happen to them. Yeah, exactly. But I would posit that that's not her only turn. Um, well, she's also badass, quite scrappy in a fight. Yeah, she seems to have like extraordinary strength. Um, he explains that. Um, so we we come upon mr haplish um mm-hmm. who i would uh hot take here spencer i'm gonna say he's not great what not a great the, guy uh, a little simple but also not great he's not great he's ultimately more well-meaning than his wife is from the brief scene that we get at the two of them but neither of them are gonna you know lead my top 10 list gonna cut the coffee for the wife Gonna gonna ratchet that back a little bit. She comes in hot in her scenes. Like every <laughs> line is like at eleven for Mrs. Haplish. Um, he ex- Mr. Haplish explains that he believes Myrtle might be touched. He's obviously concerned about this. Amalia hits him with the being touched is neither right nor wrong. It's not a character defect. Um, I think the actual line is neither right nor wrong. Being touched is not a character defect. Let's put mm-hmm. that as potential line of the episode. So mm-hmm. Amalia comes in. Um, hot questioning Mr. Haplish here. Mr. Haplish wonders if Amalia and Penance themselves are touched. Um, no, 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 no. Sorry. This is my, my, uh, my, my notes here. This is actually a question for you. Wouldn't at this point, Mr. Haplish wonder if Amalia and Penance themselves are touched? He, cause they seem to be talking about the touched people as if, oh yeah, yeah. That, you know, we're here for your daughter who's touched and that's touched, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't seem to be piecing together that these people might be too. It's one of those things of where I feel like the show would have been smarter to in some way suggest that that's a polite fiction that they maintain, that they're not actually touched, they just administered the touched, and that they keep their abilities secret or whatever else so as to provide a polite face to society. But they don't do that. Neither of them ever bother to hide their abilities whatsoever. So 
I don't think they're doing that. But at the same time, Mr. Haplish seems like he probably only ponders what's going to be for dinner that night. So I don't know how much he's dwelling on it. Man is a simpleton. He does bring up Malady. We have a new character here. She is the, she's, um, I guess, part of the Sith here. Um, <laughs> the Touched. Um, because it seems like not everybody who has a, who is touched, who has a turn, is good. It looks like Malady. A little on the nose with the name. Um, you know, has, I guess it was a malady for her. Uh, God, damn, that's terrible, isn't it? They're writing. Malady is a character we, we later recognize we've seen from the very beginning. She's one of the first characters we see in the show where we see her being hauled off to an insane asylum. Yes. That's one of the first moments we get of her. And that we hear that she is now the new style Jack the Ripper of this society, having killed even more than Jack the Ripper has. And the fact that it's a woman who's doing it to men of quality is shattering and stressing the frameworks by what the society runs under. But we'll see more of her later. Yeah, and so what we're getting, though, in, in some of the early conversations is Melody's out there, she's on the loose, and mm-hmm. uh, it's like an ever-present concern of society. And I would posit that maybe some of the... Um, confusion or or distrust or whatever around the people that are touched um, is coming from malady right it's like not sure. you know th- that's affecting what people think of the touch because malady obviously is touched she's going around killing people yeah and it's and i'm likely suspecting that the newspaper accounts of the touched are very much focusing on her and her examples rather than necessarily the orphanage's style of doing things so it's very much the popular perception that the touched are a threat the touched are touched by satan they are yeah, that's what Haplishes that, say. Yeah, and because yeah, they, yeah, they even say that they think Satan has something to do with Myrtle's affliction. That she's um, speaking in tongues. Yeah, that someone. Uh, I guess Satan's talking through her. Then we see Amalia's flash. I believe it's the thing that brought her to. It's a weird flash. I don't really know. I, I thought it was the thing that maybe brought her to Myrtle, but I was just kind of grasping at straws there. Mm-hmm. Um, they walk upstairs. They see Myrtle in bed. First thing we notice is she's chained. Amalia does not like this. Why is she chained? Uh, Penance greets Myrtle, asks if she can sit. They say they've come to help, say there's a lot of girls who've been touched. Myrtle starts to speak, and it is unintelligible to me, but it does not sound like gibberish. Um, we, um, Amalia talks to her and establishes that Myrtle can understand her. So she can understand English, mm-hmm. um, but she's just speaking a smattering of other languages. Yeah, Chinese, Turkish, I think there's some Russian in there. It's, it, it is... This is meant to be an intentional reference to, like, the Tower of Babel kind of thing, which is just adding into the whole touched God dynamic that's going into this story. Hmm. I thought it was a Pete Buttigieg shout-out uh, with all the different <laughs> languages. Um, Mr. Haplish just wonders how she can speak Chinese. Quote, she's never seen a Chinaman. Depending uh, with the great line, at least we can rule out any sort of satanic influence. Which <laughs> No, no. Honestly, no, we can't. You are jumping I know, to but I like the, I like the counterpunch from Penance here. Uh, it, 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 uh, I enjoyed it. 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 It's a very Joss Whedon counterpunch in terms of style of writing for that. And it, I also just feel that from a scientific standpoint, if we're going to entertain the idea that Satan influence is even possible, then no, you can't rule that out. You haven't done anything yet. Mr. Haplish, uh, grasping his straws here, wonders if some acrobats they saw in the park might have taught her the Chinese. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Haplish says there was a monkey looked right at her, Spencer. Monkey looked right at her. Uh, they for hear for you, that'd be a good day. Yeah, that would not be so bad for me. I wonder what happened to the monkey. I hope somebody's taking care of it. We have a responsibility to those animals. They hear a noise, and Amalia runs upstairs. She's knocked back by some folks who are in the room with Myrtle, and they close the door. Amalia gets up, opens the door. Gentlemen, can't we be civil? Yeah. Mm. Very Josh Whedon sort of line there. Like, very. oh, 
Like that's that's a, the sort of like okay corral. We're gonna start shooting right now. Um, she motions to Penance to shoot some sort of flare. She, like uh, I'm, I'm making the motion of like fingers touching like your thumb and then just sort of coming out and exploding. I don't know what. Yeah. That, that is some kind of um, hand signal between the two of them yeah uh, during the fighting and here we go this is where i want to talk about amalia we see that amalia can really fight and i what i'm seeing and maybe this does not bear out in later episodes but what i think i'm seeing is someone who is not just a good i mean she looks like she has extraordinary strength not just for a woman but for a human period that makes me wonder so she's having flashes She's like Professor X. She's seeing stuff, but it also looks like she might be like a little, little touch of Superman. So I, I don't know what her powers are or the extent to them at this point. It, it, it is, seems like it's a multivaried cocktail that we're going to find out more about. Given that we know that she's a bit of a prognosticator, it's also possible that she's so skilled in a fight because she could potentially be seeing a couple steps ahead, though I don't think we have enough of a frame of reference to really know about that yet. Either way, she proceeds to wreck shop with a whole collection of what appear to be bigger, stronger men. I mean, she's flipping them and throwing them and stuff. So I think I think there is some element of strength there. But I, don't I agree. Know. I, I, I agree. I think, yeah, maybe maybe we'll get more on that later. Um, they end up they end up like this fight scene kind of goes on for a long time. They end up like fighting outside, and at one point, Amalia tells Myrtle to run. Um, that that's just in time for the three of them to all like pile into a carriage as they're being chased by some men on horseback. I love how polite the men on horseback are in terms of letting Amalia fight one guy at a time. Because there's like three guys on horseback with shotguns just kind of staring as she beats shop on one of them. And then when they start to run away, then they start to pursue. It, it's a common it's a video game. Pursuit. It's a video game, Spencer. You, you, get, you get the bad guys one at a time. <laughs> I, I, I hate that trope on the screen, but man, do we see it a couple times here. Yeah, we certainly do. Um, Amalia says they can't outrun them. They're going to have to change it out. Penance protests says it's only a prototype. Amalia goes to work fiddling around, or no, I think Penance goes to work fiddling around with something in the carriage. Amalia looks at Myrtle and says, this is weird for us too. Thought she was talking to the audience there, Spencer. I thought it was a little bit of, this is not an everyday occurrence. Um, the fact that we are being attacked uh, when we're going after somebody who's touched is a new phenomenon for Amalia and Penance. Which they can tell me that as much as they want, but that's how you started the show. If you want to start the show slower, if you want to start the show in terms of going into the build about what their role in society is and the, you know, the normal day-to-day, show me that. Don't tell me that. But that's what we're told rather than shown for this point. Yeah, I know, because don't you as an audience want to respond, well, it's not weird for us. It's the very first scene. You're establishing this as a baseline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is now my assumption of what the show is. This is, this is all you've given me. Thank you. Just then, Amalia, Myrtle, and Penance shoot out of the carriage in the opposite way in some sort of three-wheel car type thing. I think this plays into Penance's um, uh, adept uh, ability with technology. It looks like she maybe built a little weird little car that was built into the carriage that she, that could like deploy out of it, almost like a submarine under a ship. Like It was uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. It appears to be some kind of electric vehicle as well, based on the little sparks coming off it and the lack of any exhaust kind of thing. Yeah, a little Tesla. I know. I like it. No gas it, in that bad boy. It's cool. I don't know why it works in terms of getting away from them, because it doesn't seem like it has any like higher speed. Yeah, my question is, why didn't the bad guys just turn around? They're on horses. They can make that turn faster than they can. And she's going like, you know, at speeds of 12. It seemed to me that what happened is they're going in the carriage. Let's say they're going north. 
the people in the, the, the one at a time fighters on horseback following Amalia are behind with weird faces. With weird they faces. shoot out in the weird little Tesla, but they mm-hmm. shoot south because they go the other way from where the carriage is going. Mm-hmm. And the people in uh, on the horses go, well, we're going north. <laughs> we're invested. We can't turn around. These are horses. This is they only go one direction. That's what seemed to happen. Were we supposed to think that they didn't see it? Like that they were just so focused on the carriage they didn't see that thing shoot out from the bottom? Maybe. Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe they, maybe they, obviously it's like such a new sort of weird thing. Maybe they just didn't think to look for it. I, I don't know, man. Not it was clear. very strange that they did that, that. That's what did it. But whatever. That's it what did cool. it. It was cool. It was cool to look at. Yep. Um, then she asked how they're going to handle those fellas. And Amalia has some sort of vision. Then says they're going to the opera. Um <laughs> Which is often how I decide I'm going to the opera at the end of the day, honestly. I have a vision and I go see Faust. What do you do with, your, what do you do with yourself? Yeah, it's like, well, where do we get, you know, basically Penance is like, well, what the hell are we going to do about these guys? And she goes, we're going to the opera. Okay, nice cryptic. Um, Penance then turns to Myrtle and says, see, we already have a plan. Boom, cut to fun music. That lets us know that the fight scene is over. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, though, we get the credits. Credits are crap, Spencer. They, I, I'm very I, upset with the opening sequence of this show. And this is really disappointing from HBO because HBO has become rather legendary with the quality yes. of its opening segments. I mean, it's it's become kind of their charm that you never skip the opening segments in an HBO show. This one is just barely even functional. I mean, I mean, like so many like uh, of HBO shows have had great opening sequences. I mean, obviously you have Game of Thrones. Sopranos is like legendary. The oh, Wire. Yeah. Up there, very high. Oz was good. Uh, more recently, Westworld, very good. This one's bad. I hope I hope they figure something out. Because if it's literally just, boom, here's your one slot of a PowerPoint, the nevers, and bang, it goes on, I'm unhappy with that. <laughs> I was watching this on my computer, and they gave me the option to skip the opening credits. I was like, no, I'll watch it. It was done so quick. What was the point of skipping? I know. By the fi- by the time you move your mouse over to, to, to the button, it's already done. Um, all right. Credits are over. We have the the uh, they we we end the scene with them with sort of more fun music, so we know they're going somewhere, but they're not fighting anymore. But we cut to a new scene. This is a group of drab-looking old white men in dark lighting. This is what I talked about before, chanting in Latin at various moments, which clearly is the indication this is some kind of secret society that is running power behind. Yeah, the this is not the prime minister's cabinet. This is some other no. sort of entity. Conversation starts with it's just a woman. Always a good sign. The lead guy in the room is named Lord Gilbert Masson. Seems like a real peach. Um, they're talking about Malady, talking about the fact she's murdered people. We get this quote. She's not killing whores, Your Grace. These are respectable men. I believe that was Jan, Jan Royce in the house. It was I Jan believe Royce. it was Jan Royce. <laughs> good to see the alums still working. Man, Game of Thrones people still getting those contracts. I like it. Getting in work. Uh, uh, someone, go ahead. One thing that, given that we're, we've already talked about the end, I feel like it's worthwhile just mentioning that we did see Lord Basson at the you know beginning end combined kind of moment of where he was one of the guys that was pointedly there when this event occurred on August third, eighteen ninety six. But pointedly did not get magic fairy dust. Notably, unlike everybody else we saw, but he did see a girl get it and seemingly drop either seriously injured or dead and responded very you know with concern as he ran over to her. And I wonder to what degree that's going to kind of inform his perception of the touched going forward. Well, do we think he remembers it? Because like we say, that you know, that, 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 that tape gets rewound a little bit. 
it's weird. It seems like they don't remember the ship, but they kind of vaguely remember aspects of the event. But like you said, we don't know. Maybe it's just kind of like a subconscious, you know, grudge that he now kind of holds. Yeah, someone posits that the anomalies are due to electricity. Another guy tells a story about a girl who is working in his engine works. I was watching this. I was watching this with the with the uh, the subtitles on, and that's what he said. He's working it's what he in said. engine works. Slipped, got her arm caught in the press. Then she pulled it back out. Three tons of hydraulic pressure, and she pulled it out with so much as a bruise. This is a very confusing story to me, Spencer. But here's, <laughs> I, I, I rewound I'm this like three times. Like- I'm trying to figure this out. (laughs) I'm guessing it's like a metal shop, like a metal pressing shop for making like pots or whatever else. Because this is the early age of when you've got some kind of the early mass manufacturing of, of, you know, personal home items. And it was some kind of, you know, metal press for simply, let's say, you know, cast iron pots or whatever else. And that is done by means of two giant pieces of metal coming together. And famously during this era, you'd have a lot of one-armed workers given that OSHA standards did not exist at this time. Health and safety wasn't a thing in England. And we got to see an example of a worker just kind of brushing that off, even seemingly damaging the machinery in the process. Yeah, um, but I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. I just think that they're obviously trying to write this scene with these old men talking in clip sentences, but you got to give the, the, the yeah. normal... The normal watcher a little bit more than that. Oh, no, no. I mean, most the, the, people are going to be confused by that explanation. The, the show has no time to explain itself. Not at all. It, it, it is doing its stuff, and you'll catch up maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe the tagline. <laughs> We're doing stuff, you'll catch up maybe. The network on HBO. Uh, um, basically, these guys are shocked at some of these stories. They don't know what to do about these women. They Lord don't Nassim. like it. Finn says that the touched her in the middle of some sort of attack, and they are a direct threat against the Empire. Ugh. They go on to describe the attack came three years ago, 3rd of mm. August, 1896. Masson describes it as a Monday. Um, rather, uh, rather, what did he say? Rather dark, rather lame, something like that. He said he, it was he, something he, Yeah, he, he, he did not enjoy the Monday. Um, no, it, I almost feel like this scene is just like the physical embodiment of the phrase harumph. And just in terms of what these guys stand for is that they are, you know, (laughs) they are purposely the representatives of the old society of the old established order. And they are not content with that. There have been, you know, waves made by this new change that several hundred people have now developed abilities all outside of the chosen leadership classes. And they're afraid, Lord Masson in particular is afraid that this may be in some way the prelude to some broader attack that this seems something happened we don't know how and now all kinds of people outside the established order have abilities and that's already destabilizing things because they now have abilities a frame of reference perspective beyond what they had before and they're going to want more yeah they specifically that's it yeah it's a good summary of of their what they're talking about and their overall concern they talk about new technology they have they cite x-rays electricity etc and that women are now wielding a lot of this power. Quote, potential line of the episode, ladies and gentlemen, this is a nominee. The blade is in, gentlemen. We need to know whose hand is on the hilt. Mm-hmm. That comes from our, our homeboy, Lord Gilbert Masson. Um, anything else on this thing? No, they end on a Latin chant, which is just the most easy guarantee that these guys are some kind of secret society. And... I think we cut from there. Do we cut from here to Frank Mundy? Yeah, I thought um, I thought this was going to be a little bit of a, you know, they're doing the Latin chant. I was thinking, is there, it's sex party coming soon? But that's actually a couple scenes away, but that does come. <laughs> no, you're going to get your sex party, man. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do get Frank Mundy, who uh, walks to an overgrown area where men are 
underground area where men are working. Um, so it seems like we've got we got a couple story like a couple tropes mashing up. We've got X Men, and now I think we got a little Sherlock Holmes, Frank Monday. Very, very much so. Yes. Um, and someone greets him. He's he's like going to this underground area where men are working. Someone greets him and he says he wants to see something. They see a dead body, and there's an accompanying message on the wall that says, in a bunch of spelling errors, "Behold my works, for I am the angel of death." The guy says, uh, that's how they knew it was one of hers, referencing specifically Malady. However, it's misspelled. And Mundy says it's not for Malady because she can spell. Very weird. Very odd to me that he would make this distinction. I, I, look, I know they're trying. Here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to establish that Mundy is so locked in with Malady that he, mm-hmm. can, he can pinpoint a fake just like that. That's what this scene is meant to give us. But... She can spell, and there are spelling errors in this. Little weak for me. Just going to throw that out there. I, I think it's meant to be a reference to Jack the Ripper because Jack the they famously looked at various letters that Jack the Ripper sent about which ones had misspellings, which ones didn't, which ones are the original, which ones are copycats. I think it's maybe a reference to that, but it feels like it's just a pithy Joss Whedon line to try to explain a broader understanding. Like you said, is that our point here is to say Mundy's really competent and he's locked in on malady. Yes. But he immediately explains to him a couple scenes later that also the body has been moved and it's pig's blood. But of course, being Joss Whedon, he has to focus on the most pithy little sarcastic line to start that point. Yeah, it just seemed weird and it seemed um, small and trite and not anything I'd want to hang my hat on if I was really trying to figure out who did this. But whatever. Uh, Mundy then points out pig's blood, you know, blah, 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 blah. Basically, uh-huh. the things that makes him think that the body had been moved. This is not malady. Um, mm-hmm. he thinks that this is a cover up Spencer. They, someone killed this person and they're trying to pin it on malady. Easy target, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Undy clearly thinks, um, copycats uh, are right right that, now. Yeah. Copycats are right. And that one, maybe one of the men down there did it. So he wants to look at everybody's yeah. hands to see who potentially had the blood on it. Yeah. Uh, we get a wonderful description of Mundy's style of being a detective that he could beat a confession out of a headstone, which I like. I like the various ways that works. Anything else on this thing? No, no, no. This is this is just a further example of my my mind that this episode's trying to do way too many things and there's yes. way too many characters at once. That if you yes. if, if you'd taken like half of this episode and made it the focus, and then taken the other half and made that the focus of episode two, you'd gotten a lot more time to develop these things and for us to really get a firm grasp of them and why we should care. But. We're getting a collage of stuff real quick. Yeah, breaking the fourth wall here. Spencer and I had planned to do this podcast uh, Monday at about 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I had something going on. I had to push it to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Told Spencer in the text, sorry that I have to delay. This is very good, though, because I still don't understand the show. So (laughs) (laughs) just, uh, you know, we're doing this um, semi-professionally, unofficially, uh, but semi-professionally. We're trying to take this series. We're here with you every week, folks. We're trying to do our best to explain this show, but I can tell you confused the hell out of me on the first watching. So um, I'm here with maybe you, this, we- Maybe this podcast will help you, but to your point, Spencer, um, I, I'm going to bring it up again and again as we go through the recap. Doing too much. Yeah. Some of the dialogue's hard to follow. Um, very, It can be a, a confusing first watch, for sure. So there's a lot of potential for these scenes. I actually kind of liked this scene. I kind of liked the character Frank Mundy. I enjoy this kind of Sherlock Holmes kind of story that you can work into this. But it's just so kind of lost in everything else that you're doing, so I don't get, don't have a chance to get much out of it yet. 
But maybe give him 20 minutes at the end of episode two or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, give him a chance for his own arc. We have a, we have a, we have a whole segment on the purpose of arcs, but with how many little quick snippets we get, it's hard to put some, put put together a concrete story. But. Yeah, and because they had so little time for him. I think what they gave him seemed a little absurd to me. Oh well, yep, the, the, yep, the, the, it's yep. not spelled spell right. It, and spell by the way, I can I can sniff out pig's blood in the heart. You know, come on. <laughs> how did um, he know it was pig's blood? Did, yeah, did, did they no say? Idea. No idea. Was there a pig there that was in the shadows we didn't notice? Because I mean, obviously, when you see smeared blood, you can tell if it's pig blood or human blood. I mean, Frank Money is a Jedi, ladies and gentlemen. But Cut to the we, orphanage. We're at the um, orphanage, which is yeah. so Xavier's school for the gifted. It's Xavier, <laughs> Professor Xavier's school for the gifted uh, in London, circa 1899. Cut to the orphanage. Uh, see one woman touch the soil and make plants grow like that instantly. Uh, Look, my wife has yet to watch this show, but I'm sure she's going to be very, uh, very jealous of that. <laughs> Of that I, turn, <laughs> I, lo- I, lo- I love the anguishism here. Is that it's literally blooming plant power, plant powers. Yeah, that's what she's got. Bang! I'm t- I've touched the soil. And how- here's my question for you, Spencer. Um, how did she figure out she had that turn? I- I'm guessing. I mean, she do was you eating- occasionally just touch the soil near a plant that you grew to see if it'll just like fire up? Man, you had a <laughs> lot of words in that sentence that just do not apply to me as a person. <laughs> I just don't know how she figured out she had it, but anyway, maybe she's playing something. My personal headcanon is she was having a salad, and suddenly she had a lot more salad. That could be it. Yeah, that could be it. Her side salad turned into a main, and she thought, "Wow, I got a green thumb." I, we see I, I, did, I didn't realize I was at Cheesecake Factory. How did this happen? <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, we see a woman talking to her daughter, and they're going back and forth. The girl gets a little fussy with her mom, and her mom says she thinks she's too big for a spanking. Well, Spencer, we think that's just a, we think that's just normal mom. You know, oh, she just grew yes. up, and she's coming into her own, and we're, oh, we're, there's a big reveal later. We're playing we, with angles. You can't tell. Ha, ha, ha. Ugh, that is, it's pretty lame. Uh, in comma, Molly, up in Anson Myrtle, they meet... A character that I'm actually interested in here. I like this character, yes. Horatio Cousins interests me, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amalia says he swears a lot, so right right off the bat, I like him. Um, but, qu- question, by the way. Yeah. And pardon my pardon my French for people that are listening in. I play blue, lead is not. My, my apologies for that going forward. Was fuck really prop, part of the proper English lexicon in Victorian England? Wait, yeah, when did, yeah, when did, when did that word I, come about? I'm not sure it was about in 1899. Ma- I'm pretty sure it had entered the English language, but I'm pretty sure it's like, you know, post-World War II that it really became a much more common curse kind of thing. But You think that's part of his turn? He's like a really good cusser. He's just like, he's like <laughs> creating the words. Yes! Headcanon. <laughs> he can heal and he can cuss. He is bones brought into this show. I mean, it is the first thing Amalia explains about him, that he cusses a lot. Um, Amalia asks uh, how her journey was, uh, or he asks Amalia how her journey was. She says eventful, and then pulls uh, part of her, her coat off, and you I've see been, that she I've been was cut. cut across her hip um, mm-hmm. during this big fight with all of the unnamed men. Uh, Penance is introducing them. Uh, hold on. Uh, uh, Penance brings Myrtle over to the girl we saw before, whose name is a apparently prim- Primrose. Penance is introducing Primrose them. Chataway. Ooh, what a name. Wow. That, it's, a, man, it's a good name for it. Out of the Bridgerton script. <laughs> Primrose it, Chataway. It, it's a great name for a character that has no purpose. At least not I, so far. I hope she doesn't have much because it's a lame character. Primrose um, likes that she now has a girl to talk with of her own age. And she stands up and what do we see? Spencer? 
She's like 10 foot even. She's a giant. That's right. Now we got Game of Thrones going. Um, Primrose asks Myrtle what her turn is in Myrtle response and some of the other language pants <laughs> describes it as a quote language situation pretty funny mm, uh, and mm-hmm. suggests tea <laughs> it's, the, it's the proper English response yeah sure cut to Amalia Penance and others dis- they're inside now and they're discussing the attack on Myrtle Amalia says that um, they need to bolster their security Penance uh, says she has a few tricks nothing legal uh, lethal but discouraging there's, there's also an Indian couple that are there. Do they have any relevance yet? Or are they just kind of, you know, just present? Uh, unsure. I don't know. I think that I, they, I'm they, not sure what their roles are. They hop in a car and they talk about getting married in the car. And that's kind of their role so far. But I, I guess we're going to have even more characters before we're done. Yeah, I kind of ignored them. It, it seemed to be like two people who were like uh, like Southeast Asian um, yeah. ancestry or something. And they hop in a car and say, we should get married in here. I'm not sure what they're doing. I think that, I think what we're supposed to see from that, that courtyard scene, Spencer... I'm going to give the show a little bit of benefit of the doubt is mm. there's a lot of colorful characters like, and they're yes. just sort of about <laughs> and, milling, and they're doing things right. Lit- in this case, literally colorful characters. That's part of the point. They're meant to be oh. very much the minorities in the margins of society kind of thing. That very good. I didn't mean it that way, but very good point. They are. They are also oh, people I, of co- a lot of people of color. Yeah. I thought, I thought you were being remarkably clever, sir. I'm just utterly disappointed in you now. No, no. I was being very simple. You can always assume I'm being very simple on this podcast. Surface level only for late. Uh, but yeah, basically just like, hey, there's a lot of characters around here and they're just kind of milling about and doing things. And some of them are kind of funny. And you're going to you're going to get some levity uh, in the orphanage. I think that's what we get. But okay. there's the serious room. And that's where oh. Amalia goes. And that's where she's having this conversation. She says, everybody's going to need to sign in and out now. No one goes out alone after dark. They kick around the idea of not using their turns in public, which um, I'm not sure they ever settled anything. Settled on anything with that it seemed like there was some agreement on maybe trying to limit doing some of that or well nobody's following that <laughs> well no but i mean it seems like it does seem like a sort of reasonable a, thing to suggest well it's a reasonable thing to suggest and it appears to be a standing order but given that again we're seeing characters apparently behave outside of their normal standards and their normal jobs we don't see it really followed at any point here no and i would say that like let's use a little common sense with the turn restriction I mean, if you can you can touch soil and plants grow, might want to use that one. People are going to like you. Life of the party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you know, but like what Amalia is doing, maybe not. I don't know. Um, Amalia then announces that she wants to see the beggar king. Nick Frost. Spencer, I've read a lot of fantasy. Mm-hmm. You've read probably three times more than me, if not more. Possible, yeah. How many beggar kings have you come oh, up with? It's got to be like a hundred, oh, right? God. That Of all the phrases, beggar king, I've heard that in fantasy. That is a very common name. It is a very lazy term for a particular role that, as you said, appears in every damn fantasy setting now. You, you almost just can't have a city now without a beggar king in some capacity. Man, beggar king. and But a uh, little, little wire influence out here. Uh, put like put that name out on the street, ladies and gentlemen. Amalia wants to see the Beggar King. She says, put it out there. I want it on the street. Let's tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, they say, that's not really how it works with the Beggar King. Probably shouldn't do that, Amalia. Amalia says, I don't care. Put it out on the street. My name is my name, Marlo. I like Amalia. Yeah. It's tough right there, Spencer. Um, Horatio <laughs> says, I'm all over the place with the references, by the way. <laughs> 
Yes. I was not expecting us to go full wire in this episode, but sure, yeah, that's what she's doing. All over the just did the Giants game. This is Omar calling place. out Marlo. This is really what this is. My name is my name. <laughs> Put my name out there, Baker King. Um, man, Amalia, right, right from uh, right from Baltimore. Uh-huh. Uh, Horatio says they need to tend to that wound since she's in such a hurry to make new enemies. Pretty funny line from Horatio. Yep. Um, so we, we're not quite to that scene yet, but uh, you know, I said I was interested in Horatio. I'm interested because he seems to be um, not an over-the-top character, yeah. which is like kind of refreshing because most mm-hmm. of these characters that we're getting, like Frank Mundy, is like coming in hot. Amalia coming in hot. Like he's a little bit more dialed back, which I appreciate. Um, and he seems to be a healer, which is kind of a cool thing. It is. This is a character we get very little of, but it's the kind of little of where there's there's a depth behind him that's apparent, even though we don't spend much time with him. And it partly, as you said, becomes from not being so loud. Okay, then we so cut to Hugo Swan. Which gives you a thought uh, that Spencer, there's something inside of that bottle. Might be one of the most matters. inexplicable characters from episode one. Um, I feel so like... So here's a question. Yeah. Is this just HBO saying we gotta have some boobs in this thing? This may be HBO saying they got to have some boobs in this thing, but it feels like every one of these, you know, period piece adaptations has to have one sex maniac. It seems like it's a requirement now for every one of these these historical dramas nowadays. So, little column A, column B. Hugo Swan, who is waking up from a threesome, it appears. He seems uh, maybe a little hungover. Um... But it looks like he snorts something, maybe, to get up and going. Little, 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 <laughs> little stuff. coffee in the little morning, <laughs> something, something to get himself woken up. Yeah. Um, gives him a little energy. He walks into a room with Augustus Augie Bidlow, mm-hmm. character that um, interesting character here. Uh, Augustus. He's much more interesting to me than Hugo. Um, well, Hugo's a parody trope. Augustus seems like there might be a little bit more complexity there. <laughs> They banter a bit. Hugo pours a glass of wine, so I guess he gets started with a little little cocaine, little little cocaine and glass of wine in the morning. Hair of the dog. Uh, never hurt anybody. Um, Augie mentions the orphanage with the people who were touched. Hugo seems a bit hazy on what that actually means. He kind of gives one of those like, um, didn't read the book. I uh, didn't really he, do the book report answers. He read the back jacket. He got the details. That's all he needs. You, you know, you, you, somewhere to you. You read the first ten pages. You, you read the read the Wikipedia from there. Yeah, <laughs> just well, I don't know. You know, they they, they have some uh, stuff. You know that uh, I guess uh, you know. Yeah, the one of those deals. And hmm. he sort of laughs off uh, a turn of someone he heard about. They keep referring to Lavinia. I don't believe we've seen Lavinia yet, have we? We have not seen Lavinia yet. And it takes a minute for us to realize who exactly she is, other than that she apparently runs this orphanage. Yes, I believe she runs the orphanage. Um, and it, it seems that she has some sort of relationship to Augustus. Is this Augustus's yeah. mother, maybe? I assumed at the time that it was his wife, but we later clarified that it is his sister. His sister. Okay. All right. There we go. Well, we rounded the bases on those guests. Um, <laughs> We've covered every possible end. We're good now. He mentions that Lavinia is taking some of the touched. Uh, you know, you get this sense when they're talking of like, oh gosh, Lavinia's pet project. You know, like uh, like how like rich people talk about like, oh God, you know how she works with like the soup kitchen? It was like that sort of deal. Right. L- um, last year it was great apes. Now she's moved on to something else. Ah, uh, if only. If only it was great. Uh, mentions, it mentions that these the touched are staying in their box. They mentioned that the widow, Miss True, will be there. Um, I didn't know this was first news to me that Amalia was a widow. Did you? Did, is this the first time we know this? First we've heard, though it could provide a possible explanation for the first state we see her in in terms of jumping off a pier. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, Augustus tells Hugo he needs to go. Hugo then talks a bit about how he's trying to set up some club. Uh, and he needs to work with some of the authorities in the area to get the club set up. So Hugo, not just a sex maniac, a um, I would say maybe an industrious sex maniac, an entrepreneur, yeah. as they say. Um, so he's, <laughs> he's going to create himself. He's making himself a club that I believe he's going to, if he hasn't already, I think he's already made it maybe. And now he's just trying to keep it going. It's called the Ferryman's. Which now I'm gonna, is... Mm-hmm. Gonna go ahead and venture a guess we're gonna see some ferryman's t-shirts out in the world. Um. <laughs> yes, and I imagine we're gonna have more than a few cuts to uh, ferryman's club operations over the course of the next few episodes. As you said, the, the required HBO boob time. The nudity bars have to have to be filled. Um, so then we have a quote: "Sex club is just that's just flirting on a much scarier level." This is from this is yeah. from our boy uh, Augustus. Pretty funny because he doesn't he has he wants no parts of the sex club. It's uh, it's scary to him. Um, Hugo says he doesn't have to flirt; he just has to relax. Ugh, you know every line this Hugo says annoys the shit out of me. And I didn't really not until you just said this thing about it being like the Victorian trope of the guy who just kind of is like drinking wine all the time and is like, oh yeah, you know, like you just have to relax. Mm-hmm. Not I hadn't really pieced it together that like the reason I'm frustrated by this guy is because I've seen him in a hundred other things. Yeah. The, the one debaucherous bastard that just cares about nothing other than the immediate pleasure, This there has to be seemingly one of these guys all the time. Now you see it now. Hugo seems to be requiring Augustus to go to the club if he is going to go to the opera. Doesn't seem like a fair trade. Does not seem like a fair trade. I can't wait to see Augustus at the club, to be honest with you. I think that's going to be actually a kind of funny scene. Um, Hugo then gives Augustus some sort of coin. I, so I guess you have to have like a, is it an invitation only club maybe? Seems you have to have that a coin way. to get in? M- m- definitely members only club. Some some of them have jackets, some of them have coins. This is how it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so Augustus leaves and we get a conversation with Hugo and some woman. And he, this is like the sort of like scene where it's like you're getting a sense into why Hugo is talking to Augustus to begin with and he's saying something along the lines of well Augustus is above reproach and beneath contempt so he's perfect the lady asks perfect for what as do we all we don't get an answer mm-hmm. he just tells the lady that uh, she doesn't have to wear the maid's outfit anymore <laughs> oh, oh that's right you actually are the maid sorry about that P- polite chuckle polite chuckle polite chuckle yeah yeah enough of that scene cut to amalia and horatio ah my my guy horatio my probably my my favorite character from the first episode horatio is helping her with the cut on her hip mm-hmm. and she we says learn she, she says she likes to yeah exactly she says she likes to watch him work it's like he's conducting he says well if you get in wrong with the beggar king you'll get a symphony which was a funny good, that was a funny good line i like that that was actually really clever <laughs> yeah in marches myrtle and apparently they have received the official invitation to the opera amelia mentions she knew this thing she had a rippling i think that's what she called it it is that seems to be what she calls her little flash forward prognostications Ah, yeah. So now we have a name for this thing, right? It's a, mm-hmm. it's a rippling. Horatio, Horatio mentions that she needs to rest. Amelia says it's just the opera. She has to be there. Horatio says that uh, there may be trouble. Uh, or ask, uh, is there going to be trouble? And then she says, like, uh, doesn't really give an answer. Give a non-answer. Um, Amelia has been, a sent, a, has been sent a dress by Lavinia. She mentions it'll be hard to get into. Horatio says, it's a good dress for you. Beat, beat. 
it'll keep pressure off the wound. So a little sexual tension there, Spencer? There was some flirting. There was some flirting, yeah. Are we going to ship them? I don't have enough yet to really be invested to care, but there's. it seems like the show may be going in that direction. That you taught for the those who are just joining us for the first time. Spencer taught me that the term ship apparently is what I'm so glad. I'm so glad I taught you that term. He taught me ship, so now I'm always I like use it in our pods, and I'm always looking at him for some sort of validation to see if I've used you, it. You, well. I think I did it okay here. You did it perfectly. This this is the initial, you know, creator endorsed ship that we're supposed to have. It seems. Yeah, we're gonna ship Amalia and Horatio. Um, now, now you're breezing over the key detail that we learned there—that Horatio is apparently himself also one of the touched that has a pretty impressive ability. Uh, yeah, that, that's sorry. That, I think I maybe mentioned this earlier—that he's a healer. Yes, literally a healer, is in the sense that lays on hands kind of healer. Yeah, he he like when I say he was helping her with the cut on her hip, he was waving his hands around and the cut was being fixed. So he is like. He says it. He called it surgery. I guess when when Myrtle broke in, I don't really think it didn't seem surgery to me. It just seems like he has like the ability, like almost like the lady that we saw touch the dirt and the plants yep. grew. Like this guy seems to be able to wave over cut, cut gets fixed. It, 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 like the lady that could make you know plants bloom in a, in a heartbeat. This one seems a particular usefulness. This is a really concrete. You could market these skills kind of thing. Yeah, but Horatio, to that point, responds and says, no, 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 the, this actually just gets you branded as some sort of, like, voodoo magician. Like, so he he even, like, is saying, like, you know, basically I have to hide this, this, uh, this eh. um, turn do we buy, that he has. Do we, do we buy that? I do think that he has to hide it. I don't, I think it's in part a lot of racism. That's where, yeah. Because that's, he that's specifically says the word voodoo, which makes True. me think that, like, you know that any 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 black person in like 1900 uh, Victorian England who says like I I can do something otherworldly, they're like ah uh, get away with your black magic, sir. Particularly when this is an ability that is you know drawing comparisons to the Messiah in terms of you know healing the lame and the injured and all the rest. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's our our boy Horatio Healer. Um, he's one of the fir- I think he's the first touched. Um, guy that we we actually see what his turn is right we'd heard tell before that there were touched guys that none of them were of you know the ruling class of society or nobility or anything else but he's the first one we've actually met yeah at least that we know we've met yeah all right i'm 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 gonna go ahead and uh, my big board uh, on lee's big board ladies and gentlemen horatio number one right now malia two um i think i'm gonna put my man augustus three that's what i have got him ranked so far okay uh, cut to the evening, and the music implies we're on the way to the opera. Um, <laughs> I started this <laughs> I started this whole thing by telling you, Spencer, how much I love the music. Oh, man, like I, I just went on and on early on. I'm going to like the music. I'm going to like the music. Music a little too on the nose for me here in this cut. It's just a bit. <laughs> just a bit. A, it was a little frilly, uh, a little sort of laughable. Um, everyone's all dressed up, and they're mm-hmm. getting ready to go to the opera, and it is all kinds of gray outside. Uh, cinematography in this thing, they really play with light hard. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they, you you are cutting to like a, almost like you have to turn up the contrast on your TV to even see the scene. Whereas before we were in a fully lit room. Um, Good point. That's going to that. drive some people crazy. The internet's <laughs> going to complain about this at some point. <laughs> mm-hmm. If Game of Thrones tells us anything, lighting issues on HBO shows will earn fanned ire. <laughs> It was supposed to be dark, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, um, everyone's all dressed up. Uh, they then Penance and Amalia get in a carriage and they are talking. Amalia mentions her wound, says it itches, and again reaffirms that they just need to be there. She wishes she knew why. I feel like we're getting a lot of little teeny hints here into Amalia's turn. Like, so here we're getting like, yeah, like, so I think just before we, we figured out she calls it a rippling, and now we're getting that she can have ripplings that tell her she needs to be doing something, but she doesn't know why, which has to be fucking maddening, right? That has to be just an awful thing. That, that, that's insanity right there. That is, the, that, is the, that is the straight path to the nuthouse. Well, we're going to cover that base here soon with another character. <laughs> one, one, one thing to note here about common tropes you see in these kind of period piece dramas, there were at least two corset jokes as the two of them were getting ready. Another thing that's required in every single drama portraying this area is a corset joke. That's true. Amalia has hit the corset jokes hard and early in this episode. Um, yeah, and, and we also get like the feeling that she's like, a woman that is like over the times, right? Like she's mm-hmm. just like, you, you know, we get a sense that she's never saw a corset that she's ever wanted to put on in her life ever. And so we're just going to get that from her character. Um, Which is heavily exaggerated. Corsets were nowhere near as bad as we modernly think they are, but it's a very common trope to show a more modern liberated woman that period objecting to corsets, even though they were basically just underwear during that age. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, actually, just ladies. Uh, did you hear that? <laughs> this is a hill on the die on, yes. <laughs> here's, our, here's our guy, Spencer. Corsets weren't that bad. Stop your complaining, okay? <laughs> yeah, I, I could I post on our webpage some historian videos that have talked about how the modern view on corsets is heavily exaggerated through a very modern lens. I uh, I just want you to get, I want you to stay on this take. I want every okay. time it gets brought I'm up, like, hard. hey, come on, like stop your complaining here. They won't get that. <laughs> then all of a sudden, whoop, the carriage comes to a stop, ladies and gentlemen. And is that the Beggar King's music? We have the Beggar King. Now, I did complain about this guy's name. I'm never going to like the guy's name. They don't give us his name, so I guess I'm going to have to call him the Beggar King. Mm-hmm. Um, the HBO's website calls him. D Clan Oran, but we don't we don't get that name in this episode, so I guess we're just calling him the Beggar King. But I will say this: like the actor, Nick Frost is a great actor. I was honestly surprised to see him in this. He reminds me of um, Action Bronson. He looks like Action Bronson to me, um, the rapper. Anyway, yeah, I can see from your face. <laughs> no right clue. No, politely nodding. <laughs> looks like Action Bronson to me. But anyway, um, it worked, Spencer. Putting the Baker King's name out in the street worked. He came to them, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got some henchmen. And he uh, he he asked one of the henchmen to go away, give him room to talk. He does mention uh, he apologizes for the stench. It's opium. So if you're you're keeping track of your Victorian bingo card, um, <laughs> Victorian piece bingo card, you can go ahead and check opium. We've, what, we've got what, the opium check. Was Sid Stinky Hitchman like eight feet tall? Was he like? Really damn massive. With like a mask on, I think. Something like that, yeah. Or at least yeah. in heavy shadow. Yeah, that's pretty strange. Uh, but anyway, I guess they're doing opium too. So we're, we're going to have that dynamic going forward. Penance clearly has never met this guy before and she's nervous, which indicates to me one of two things. The Beggar King is either really dangerous or really famous. Which which do you think it is or both? Uh, da- dangerous and famous in certain circles. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of A and B there. And and we get that, you know, uh, Penance is very, very worked up when she meets him. Beggar King is unhappy that Amalia put his name out in the street. He doesn't like that crap at all. Amalia mm-hmm. explains, well, Myrtle was attacked at about the same time that we came to him. 
And obviously they want his help. Beggar King starts to piece together that he kind of has no choice now, right? Like, I mean, it, you know, they, they went through this thing. They put his name out in the street. I think he's feeling like he's got to got to help them. Is that is that the, the, the dynamic of the conversation? I'm not really clear. Because they basically accuse him of, you know, selling information to the other side. And he essentially admits that, yeah, that's that's what I do. I've got no particular loyalty to you. Well, I thought there was two things. I thought you, you, we started with this concept that the Beggar King says. He's almost like reading the tea leaves and saying, wait a second, you put, you you got attacked, you put my name out in the street, and now you're asking me for help. I, I have no choice. But then it, I think it pivots to a second part of that conversation, which is them wanting to know, hey, did you sell the same information you gave us to anybody else? And he promptly tells them to F right off on that point. Yeah. He's not going, he's not going to help them. That does lead me to. I think I may have misstated something earlier in the in the recap. I don't think it's Amalia's turn that got them to Myrtle. It seems like it's just information from the Beggar King that got them to Myrtle. Maybe a little column A, column B. I mean, it's not like she gets. It's not like she gets shown an address when she has her little views. So even if she knows that something is going to happen, she probably needs some information help to even know where the hell it's going to occur. Not probably not everything occurs as obviously as the opera. Right. Yep. Um, they, yeah, he says, well, what, you know, when they're basically asking if he sold the information to anybody else, he's got this quote, well, wander away, princess, apart from the sanctity of my harmonious marriage, fuck all is exclusive. I'm going to nominate that for potential line of the episode. I like mm. that line. Malia then says she needs to know who's hunting the touched and, uh, she needs it exclusive. Tells him, cut the posturing, name your price. He throws out the crown fucking jewels. They get quiet and he kind of, this is where you can tell, this is where you can tell the Beggar King himself is not touched and he doesn't know a lot of touched people because he kind of stops and goes, wait a second, are you guys, wait, are you, you considering this? I was kidding. (laughs) So it shows that like there is a, there's a respect going both ways here in this conversation because he doesn't quite know what they're capable of either. Um, Instead, they offer him a car. Yeah, they offer him a gift. Beggar King's getting a Tesla, Spencer. Which is a hell of a kingly gift in 1899. Designed to his specifications, too. Um, our girl throws in, Penance throws in. Uh, I don't think that the Beggar King really uh, understands what he's getting. He'd be a little bit more excited if he'd seen this thing before. I don't think he's quite realized what, what kind of gift he's got. Who's Who's seen a car in this day and age? You may have read about one in a newspaper, but other than the one they briefly saw riding on the streets of London a few days ago, they're otherwise practically a myth. Yeah, and as he leaves, I think he, his point is like, well, you know, you, you, you could... You know, in as much as you you may be capable of fulfilling this deal, you're mm-hmm. also capable of not fulfilling this deal because I don't necessarily trust you guys. And so he threatens her face. He puts a, a switchblade up to her face, to which Amalia says, this isn't my face. Okay. Yeah. Let's yeah, pull yeah. the emergency brake here. Yeah. What? Yeah. This I, is the most confusing line of the episode. This isn't my face? I mean... That's the kind of line of a almost willing to believe that she intentionally said it just to fuck with him. Because we have nothing else to go on as to what the hell that means. Other than we've seen some other touched people with some really messed up faces. Spencer, did she have like a, a brooch with like a jewel across no, her No, she's not that, Melisandre. Like... I know where you're going. No, it's not <laughs> oh, okay. that. All right, well, all right. Uh, scratch that. Nipping that one in the bud right now. I, I have no idea what this means. I've written it down to later refer to. We have... 
absolutely no way of understanding what this is at this point. Confused the high hell out of me. And I, you know, one of the criticisms we've talked about uh, so far this episode is that they, they're mashing a lot into this episode, right? There's a lot going on. They're throwing a lot of things at us. The scenes are pretty short. I felt like if you're going to introduce, if this isn't just what you you posited, right? If you, she she might just be fucking with him. If she's fucking with him, then fine. We'll we'll figure that out, and it won't be a big deal. But if this is actually some clue into either her turn or just how she, like what she is now, we have enough. We didn't need that clue right now. Like just settle down. Like, yeah, throwing a lot at us. Be, be, parse these out. We got time. You got a full season. You got six episodes now and six episodes later. You don't need to give us everything here at the start. Cause what we've seen doesn't seem to make much sense of it. We saw her in the, in the initial three-year-ago flashback, and it was her face. It doesn't look like she's changed anyway, so long as it is actually the same person. Is this a hint that she's not that person? I don't know. We'll make a note of it for later use. Yeah, and so then... Um Outside, one of the guys laughs and said, I thought you were going to scare them. At this point, I believe in the writer's room, they're sitting around and someone raises their hand and go, hey, I'm not saying we rewrite it. You know, we're close to the end, but maybe we made the Beggar King seem a little too nice there. And I think somebody said, oh, okay, well, why don't we just have him break the fingers of the guy outside? Like it it seemed to me a makeup scene where they're like, they're just trying to beat you over the head with this idea. Hey, uh, well, he is... Yeah, that conversation wasn't too bad, but he really is supposed to be scary. That was lazy. That was really lazy. I mean, they're trying to show him as a threat or a bad boss or whatever else, but that is the most hackneyed way of doing that. Of where he has a conversation he doesn't like and he beats up on a subordinate. That's just standard way of showing, oh, this is a bad dude. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you, which is why I posited they did it at like 4.50 in the writer's room. <laughs> just about done with the day. And they're like, well, maybe we don't rewrite it. Maybe we just toss in two more lines. Um, cut to the people walking into the opera. Oh, indeed. And um, Amalia is moving her hand in some sort of weird way. Um, I, I, I'm just, I, you can tell from the recap, I'm intrigued with what the hell Amalia's powers is. I'm, I've been trying to piece it together. <laughs> we, we've got some details. She's doing this thing with her fingers where she's running her four, her four, in, her four digits across her thumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, over and over again and apparently it may, I, it, I don't know like I guess Penance has some sort of read into this because she stops her and like grabs her hand and holds it I don't know what that means maybe something maybe nothing mm-hmm. um, uh, cut you, go ahead you want, you, you want to also compare by the way uh, you know creator shipping versus fan shipping googling it fans are already shipping the two those two female characters together really Penance yes. and oh I mean I'm not against it um, I just, uh, you know, I thought maybe they could just, I don't know. Yeah, I thought they were just more like partners in crime. No, no, but no. Anyway, in, maybe in, they'll ship. In, in, no, no. Shipping is pure, often is just purely fan wish fulfillment. And among among fandoms, there are no such things as friends. Everybody's fucking are going to fuck at some point. Okay. All right. There we go. Let, let, all right. Internet, ship them away. Do it. Did I say it right? I don't know. Anyway. You'll learn. You'll get there. Cut to Hugo, who is uh, in the back with some woman, and they are uh, having, they're just talking. Uh, I guess they have sex later, but right now they're just talking. And we get our first shot of Mary Brighton, um, who is a cast member. She's in the back, by the way, uh, near Hugo. Who at this point we don't know is important, but boy, will that change here in a moment. Yeah, uh, I feel like I I know the actress, but anyway, I, I'm not 100 sure. But um, cut to Lavinia. Now we get Lavinia, um, and she is Lavinia in a wheelchair. Well, Lavinia's in a wheelchair, which just makes the Professor X comparisons all the more on the nose. 
This is hilarious. That really, the lady who runs the orphanage is in a wheelchair. Wow. Okay. I All know right, Joss Whedon. I know they want to portray a very diverse cast. I think it's part of the point that the, 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 the people who are protagonists are at the margins of society. They're looked down upon. They're discriminated against. They're judged. But when you're running a school for exceptional people and you have the person who owns and runs it be in a wheelchair, how can you not make the comparison? So do you remember that time that George W. Bush was taken? Um, he was taking some questions from people in the press corps and he told that one guy, hey, you, I guess it's stand too up, bright in here. Stand up. Oh, no, None, you're right. Yeah. Too bright in here for you or something like She's that. Because the guy sunglasses. had, had glad, sunglasses on. Turns out the guy like has some sort of like uh, deterioration, like like actual disease with his eye. He has to keep the sunglasses on. And George W. Bush kind of gave him shit for it. Um, in my notes, the first go around, so the first go around for me in notes is second time I've watched it. I watched this thing three times now. Second time I wrote how much I loved Lavinia for not standing up when all these people came. I thought she was oh, just God. a boss. You <laughs> 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 asshole. I thought she was just a boss. I thought when like an old white guy walks in the room and she, you know, everybody's calling him your grace and she doesn't Oh, she's stand. in charge here. Yeah, that's what I thought. Anyway, she stands for nobody. Thank the dear Lord I watched it a third time and did not get on pod with you and start down that road. Oh, man, I would have had so much fun with that. <laughs> um, uh, Lavinia is talking to some dude. She seems sort of over him. They're having some sort of conversation mm-hmm. that they yank Augustus into. Um, not really important what the conversation is. I think it's more important the dynamic between Augustus and Lavinia. It seems that Augustus, she just sort of pulls him around. He's like a little poodle dog for her. Which Hugo called out earlier. He called out that it's not really fair the way that she treats you. And Augustus agreed, but still seems to kind of go along with it. That she's very much the one in charge in their pair. Is Lord Gilbert Mars and approach Lavinia. They get introduced. They start arguing over the word employees. Apparently, Masson doesn't like the word a lot. Um, employees, I guess, is a new word to mm. fair society. He wants to continue using the phrase they've used all along. The employee doesn't see the benefit in replacing the term. In comes Amali off the top rope. Explains that the benefit is singular. The employee doesn't allow someone to refer to a single employee and only a mass of people. And then she. Uh, further uh, extrapolates that maybe you don't like it because you don't want to like you know identify right. individuals. You just you know they, they're all just one big mass to you. Um, which which isn't a which is actually a rather period authentic kind of conversation. Not to say the way that it's occurring, but these kind of class tensions and the idea of rising of workers' rights, dead on era era appropriate. Upton Sinclair's coming, coming to you, ladies and gentlemen. Just wait 15, 20 years. Lavinia introduces Amalia, explains she runs the orphanage. I don't know if you caught that. Lavinia does say Amalia runs the orphanage. She did. And then later, Amalia kind of course corrects and says, no. Anyway, we'll get to it. But she, she later explains, no, I don't really run it. But anyway, Masson then says he's, uh, he assumes that she's afflicted. And Lavinia says, yes, but she considers herself afflicted. She takes issue with the term. Mm-hmm. Masson says that, well, there's some more fortunate than others here, basically saying, well, some are afflicted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Molly agrees, but says generally they suffer more from society's perceptions of them. A little verbal jousting here. Uh, go, Amalia, go. Augustus then blurts out, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> look, look, all right, I would look. I, I'm. I know. I know you. I'm not. I'm not trying to be mean here, but you were not the most popular guy in high school, right? God, no. Socially awkward as hell. Struggled with women a little bit early on. Still, actually, but you know, I appreciate you think I've improved at some point or another. 
Oh yeah, you. I, I, I I'm the same way. I, I struggle with women. I just felt so much kinship when he did this. Oh, I was God, like, oh God, yeah. we've all had that moment, right? Where the hot girl walks in and you're like, what oh, are you wearing? <laughs> it, it's, it's gonna. You almost up. just picture in his head a desperate desire to find something to start a conversation with. He's like going through. How do I? What, what do I talk to her about? What, what can I really start a conversation with? What can I see about her? What, what, what can I really? Just, well, they, you know, well, she said she's reference. afflicted. She, she, she said she's touched. She said, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> It's pretty funny, but what? Here's the thing, though. Here's why I don't. Here's what frustrated me with the writing, mm-hmm. is that I loved that moment because it showed me that he was interested in her. He thought she was attractive. Why else would you be that completely befuddled and say something so stupid when she walks in the room? Right? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. But then, like everything else in the writing so far, that you know, I'm not trying to be too critical early on, but come on, they beat you over the head with yeah. it. Because then he goes on to explain, well, you 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 look quite nice, you look great. It's like, dude, you did. They didn't need to write that part, right? They no. could have just given me the blurt out, and then I would have gotten that he finds Molly attractive. But anyway, yeah. they go on, they go on, they take it too far. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very much with you. the The blurt felt authentic. The next like thirty seconds of him jabbering just felt tacked on, and we get a we get a fair portion of that of where there is good material that they then just draw out unnecessarily. Yeah, right. Like I mean, he blurts out, "What's wrong with you?" And then Hugo, <laughs> Hugo, Hugo, can tell has been in some sideways conversations because he lies quick. He goes, "Oh he well, for him. <laughs> oh well, he was talking to me." Augustus blows right through that. Doesn't yeah. even try to go with that line. He goes, "Well, you—it's just that you're quite nice, and you've got the orphanage, and well, but that's the part where I felt like they didn't have to do." Mm-hmm. Um, Lavinia then sets up Amalia to explain her turn. I felt like this was important because I felt like it's—it might be considered kind of rude in their in their conversations to just ask somebody about their turn, right? But Lavinia then eventually does kick it to Amalia and say, well, no, no, dear, they really do want to know. Please, please explain to them. The stand-in here is asking somebody about their disability. It's like, you know, you just met somebody for the first time and say, hey, how'd you end up in that wheelchair? It's a rude way to start a conversation with a person who's disabled, and I think they're trying to draw parallels there. Same as they did with the, you know, the afflicted versus the the touched kind of thing, of where are you disabled, handicapped, crippled, or are you, you know, differently abled? That kind of terminology wars between what's judging and not. Right, but it, but but Lavinia does seem to be like sort of on the like she's on the good side, right? And she's able to just say, no, 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 dear, you really should explain he, it. Now. He didn't mean it. He didn't mean it in any way, judging whatever else. He's just curious, and he's a yeah. dork. Amalia says, um, Penance is an inventor, a creator. Penance is a pretty good line there where she says there's only one creator. I don't know. I thought that was pretty funny. Hmm. Uh, got a giggle out of me. Um, this is where we get the line we talked oh. about, about Penance's skill. That, like, of everything to leave on the writer's room floor, this is number one. I wrote the quote down. Um, I can see energy, potential energy, where it wants to go or meet or settle. That means nothing at all. It's just poetic gibberish. My notes just say all caps UG with that explanation. Um, then we get Madison who says, uh, who asks what Lavinia's is, and, or um, Amalia's uh, turn is, and Lavinia says, and Amalia tends to be a few steps ahead of the rest of us. Really, really cool old lady way to say that, right? That was actually pretty good writing. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things of where. Um, you just almost want to turn to uh, Penance and say, hey, see her description? That's how you explain abilities right there. If you want to be poetic and vague, do it that way. Yeah, not I can see where energy wants to go or meet or settle. That, uh, yeah, that means nothing. Um, 
Hugo then says, so I shouldn't ask how I'm going to die, Lavinia. I can already tell we're getting some Lady Olena Tyrell vibes here from Lavinia because she cranks in with no, but we can, but one can safely assume it will involve a French word. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Amalia then pieces together that Lord Maston is a soldier, which prompts Lavinia to say he's a soldier on the front line against change. Maston responds by saying he's old, seen a lot of change, but... Shit, quote, shouting for recognition does not make a people worthy. There's a harmony to our world that's worth preserving. Amalia, as I understand it, harmony is made up of different voices sounding different notes. Masson, yes, and one is always above the other. My nominee for quote of the episode, because I think it embodies the tensions that are going to be rife throughout the show, is those conflicting perspectives. Potential line of the episode right here. Yeah, for sure. I had this back and forth. And then the opera gets started. And in the back, Hugo is having sex with some woman. I guess we're going to get that a lot. Um, <laughs> then, can we just yeah. like limit that to like once an episode? Do we need like three times? Just I get it. We're going to get a lot of that. I'm thinking. Yeah. This is, I think this is, I think at least in the first six episodes when Whedon was still running the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, fun question. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, I, that, that's going to be a really fun for us, by the way, in the break between the two seasons. is Because, like, first six seats, first six episodes we're getting is Joss, a Joss Whedon creation. And then then after that, he's been dropped. So, like, it'll be interesting to see the changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then Amalia gets her senses overloaded. Uh, I don't know if that is a ripple or not. I don't know what that really was. But she just seems to, like, she seems to have, like, heard things really loudly for a while. Because there's, like, a effect on stage where there's some pyrotechnics before the devil comes out and she seems to hear that louder than everybody else. I don't know. Again, I'm still trying, playing playing detective here with Amalia's turn mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. And as the devil comes on stage, whoop, gets stabbed right through the back of the throat and Malady is here. Now she's on stage, sort of acting nuts, running around, giggling a lot. Can I'm getting I... serious Helena Bonham Carter vibe here. Oh God, yeah. This is discount Hel- Helena Bonham Carter right now. Just big time. That's a perfect description on your part. Yeah, hard vibes here for that but you you were going to stop me for something i was just going to say that of all of the material we get in this episode this is far and away my least favorite scene because it just keeps going on i completely agree um uh, you know my second and third watching of the episode i was amazed when we got to that scene how much of the episode in time was left because i paw i was pausing it to write my notes and i was like wow Wait a second. When the, when Malady starts on the stage, there's still 20 minutes left. Because I, in my memory, I'm like nothing else happens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she talked. Honest to God, she talks for like three minutes straight up on that stage, and just this unbroken rambling monologue. That I guess if I was invested enough, I'd write down for like further little hints or spoilers as to what's going to come into the future. A certain amount of foreshadowing or red herrings. But man, I just started tuning out hard when she just yeah, kept it's... going on. <laughs> It's just like we've seen that. Like this is Helena Bonham Carter's like like jam right here. This yeah. is like Beatrix Carter, like amped up, like cubed, right? Or uh, Beatrix Strange. There we go. Yes, that's it. Um, uh, amped up, cubed here. Um, I, I had a question here written in my notes for you. I think you've already answered it. I wrote Spencer. Are we supposed to take anything from this monologue of hers? Probably. I mean, this is going to be that kind of like you know. This is the kind of interpretation of where it's like trying to, you know, actually predict your future based on what an oracle tells you. It's all nonsense that you're only going to understand after it happens. That's... I don't don't think we're spending... I think we... I honestly think it's this simple. She's a murderer and she's crazy. I think think we spend three and a half minutes for that. 
One of the implications we get out of this, though, is that she's not necessarily acting of her own will. There's a certain implication that either God delusion or someone acting in the role of God is kind of directing her actions. That's, I some, that's something thought it we was get a, a bit. God delusion. Yeah, yeah, because she does say, God talked to me, put this crown on the thorn on my head. There's an, I don't know what she says. But anyway, she starts talking about God. The important thing here, though, we do finally get to something important, is Malady is not alone. She has got some some soldiers with her. She's got a guy who hops up, ready to shoot. He's got some sort of arm cannon going. Is he touched, um, or does he just have a minigun for an arm? I think he's just got an arm cannon. Um, sure, think, why yeah, not? I, and then we have another character, which um, I think is going to be a big character, Annie Carby, who is uh, nicknamed Bonfire. Did they um, say that name, or did you get that from HBO? Stole it from HBO's website. Gotcha. Yeah. But I, Carby, Bonfire, Car- yeah. Carby, Any, anybody? anybody? Yeah, I'm with you. I, I got you. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, she's got some She's got some folks here, right? And the guy with the gun jumps up. Bang, bang, bang. He starts shooting. And uh, Bonfire he, he jumps up. He sprays the crowd. He, like, kills, like, a dozen people up in the upper deck, doesn't he? Absolutely. He just starts shooting the crowd. Yes. <laughs> he does. It's a really <laughs> big fucking deal. That would make the press. That would... That's, those are the upper crust society getting slaughtered in their theater. The military would be in the streets. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the implication here is that malady is that much of a public health issue, a uh, public safety issue, is that she's just like showing up places and just killing random people. I think that's good. And, you know, we heard before that like, you know, that the the upper crust feels especially threatened and from malady as well. So, uh, you know, I think she's going after it. Uh, but anyway, um, we have a uh, fireball or bonfire lady jumps up. She starts a fire. But as this chaos starts to unfold, Mary Brighton starts to sing. And her singing seems to have serious energy associated with it. Something that's stopping everything in its tracks. I thought it was a pause button. I thought you got trapped in her singing and the energy that comes from it. I thought it was a way to sort of stop situations. I thought that was her power. It made a lot of sense to me. It seemed to be unfolding that way. And then fucking Malady just walks over and shuts her up. Like, I did not understand how Malady was able to just, like, walk through it and put her hand over her face. A couple interesting things. One, the comparisons between her and, like, a siren from, like, Greek mythology seem rife. That seems to be the kind of thing we we want to get out of this. It's this kind of almost enrapturing effect. But beyond just simply the overall crowd and what effect it may, may or may not have on them, did you notice the kind of like energy threads that are connecting various people as she's doing this? Yeah, yeah. There seemed, yeah, they, that did not seem to be an accident. And it seemed like they were only going to the touched. Right. But, but then, yeah, but then Malady just sort of just snaps out we, of it. We don't know what it actually does. We know that it stops people briefly in their tracks. We know that it seemingly provides some kind of connection or linking point between the touched. We know it has this kind of siren presentation, but as you said, either Malady, you know, successfully rolls her save D&D style, or it just doesn't do what we thought it did. Yeah, I don't know. Rolls her save? We'll what? talk D&D this... terms later, don't worry. Is it Dungeons and Dragons? I thought you were talking about D&D from Game of Thrones. No, no <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons. We're, we're going too nerdy for you. I'm sorry. I'll dial it back a bit. Rolls her save. Yeah, she rolled her save. Uh, anyway, uh, but Malady uh, just snaps out of it, goes over, hand over the mouth, shuts up Mary, and um, uh, then we get Amalia jumps into the fray, literally jumps down onto the stage, and Penance feels the need to shout, oh no, she fell. Why? Why? <laughs> 
What's the well, point of that? Again, again, I'm over here. I've got my big board. I've got I'm Homeland. I'm, I'm starting to to map out all of the different things that try to tell me what the hell Amalia's real turn is. I think that she's got superhuman strength. I think the fact that she's got superhuman strength is being hidden. I think the turn that she is outwardly telling people is the 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 seeing things before they happen, the little bit of foreshadowing that she's got. I think that the strength part she's hiding. So I think when she does the jump and it clearly doesn't hurt her and she's able to just like leap from like a story up, I think that that's why um, our girl feels the need to say, oh, oh no, she fell. It's it's hard to tell because Josh Sweden loves what's referred to as waifu, uh, waifu, in terms of a style of like martial art, of where women that have basically no muscle mass, that are incredibly slim and slight, somehow are the ultimate fighters of the universes that he paints. We saw it in Firefly, we saw it in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we saw it in Dollhouse. It's something he loves to put in all of his works. And often he doesn't really have much of an explanation for it other than he likes to see it. Sometimes it's super strength, sometimes it's seeing the future abilities. In this case, it may be both at the same time, but... I don't know why they even just feel the need to provide a certain degree of cover. Like, why is she even yelling that out? Nobody's paying attention at this point. They're running for their lives. I think lives. it's for us. It, I think it's, honestly, I think it's for us. I think yeah. it's to show that, that, that there's something to cover there. Um, that That's my guess anyway. Who knows? We'll see. Mm-hmm. But no, you're, you're right. It could just be Joss Whedon likes to watch... You know, women just beat the hell out of each other. So maybe that's part of it. Mm. Um, which gives the impression that she's covering for Amalie and someone. Yeah, yeah. They run backstage past Hugo. Um, who's uh, post-coital, I guess. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> then we get a chase scene. He's literally smoking a cigarette in a later scene. So sure. Yeah, I don't know. And then we get a chase scene with Amalia chasing Malady, um, who's taking Mary. During the chase, we have a pretty cool scene where Malady's going down a spiral staircase. And uh, she's got Mary... And um, bonfires with her, and then um, down through the middle of the of the spiral staircase, Malady jump or uh, 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 Amalia jumps. Yes. Um, it, it rips her her dress off as she goes, but she's got like I mean, it's not like a nude scene or nothing. But she's got like a bunch of uh, she, her undergarments are still there, very much fully clothed on the on, under L- it. A lot of petticoats, um, but she lands like like fists in superhero. The, like, she style. lands like Black Panther lands like. So it made me think yet again that like. She's able to make that jump. Mm. I don't. It's, what I'm trying to say here is, I don't think that the dress tearing off no. No. is meant to tell us, oh well, that that broke or fall. What? I think we're supposed to think that she's able to make that jump, and that's yet again more part of her her superpower that we're seeing. It, it, the show's asking us to do one of two things: either massively, willfully suspend disbelief that the tearing of her dress was enough to save her from breaking every bone in her lower body, which I don't think it's asking us to do that. Or two, that she literally landed with a three-point superhero pose from all the Marvel movies. So maybe draw a point of comparison here about what maybe her full range of abilities are. Yeah, she's got some superpower going on. Like actual physical power going on here. Um, um, But, uh, weirdly enough, um, they've taken a couple scenes now to establish her strength. And she gets in a fight with Malady and she loses. So I I don't uh, It's all over the place. Do we get a little bit of what Malady's superpower here is too? Because she gets this kind of weird red demonic eye effect. Yeah, she, yeah. Yeah, she goes into like another, she's like almost Hulk. Is she the Hulk? Spencer, is she Hulk? (laughs) she, She could be she Hulk. This is possible. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like you wouldn't like me when I'm angry type of situation. I don't know. Um, but yeah, she, she gets red eyes, and, and during that, it seems to like 
bolster her a little bit. She fights. She beats Amalia. She she has her she has her beaten on the card. What? I scored the rounds 10-8, 10-8. Which was so polite of what was the name of of, of the uh, black character that can that can shoot fire again? A uh, bonfire. Bonfire. So polite a bonfire to just stand there and watch it happen, like just oh no, no no this is that kind of this is a superhero fight moment. It'd be very rude of me to intrude. I'd like to yet again take a moment to take a a, a side punch to the writing. You literally just did this. What what's the lady who who what's the name of the lady who who makes the fire? Bonfire. Oh yeah, bonfire. That you know what I'm saying? That's tough, right? <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> that was just a bad sequence for the writing of this show that what just happened right there. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, the, the uh Malady gets the better of Amalia again, escort ten eight, ten eight, Molly's on the ground, and they the authorities start to come. So uh I guess Bonfire and Malady kind of take a turn into like a side hallway, Bonfire like lights up um, some fire that I guess is supposed to go up the staircase maybe and Amalia nose dives uh, into something into some water say water or something they get saved which is a I feel is a very pointed kind of reference back to the first moment we saw of her in of where yeah. the first we ever saw of her was you know committing suicide by dro- by falling into water and now we see her you know diving into water to save herself and she's noticeably out of sorts when, he see, when we see her in her next scene so that may be a certain degree of you know it was a flashback or something there when she dived into the water. Yeah. Cut to Hugo. And I mean, I'm telling you, you talk about scene stealer, scene stealer. What's the opposite of scene stealer? That's what Hugo is. <laughs> I am just not interested in this guy. Just yeah. not interested. He's being interviewed after the fact. The detective dismisses the woman he has with him. We find out later it's because they're in some sort of like. I guess the detective is helping him with this what? club, the Ferryman's Club, in some well, way. He's bringing them the women. Well, yeah, was he involved, is he involved in sex trafficking? Is that what we're I supposed think, to get out of this I think scene? that was the implication, yeah, is that he brings them the women. That, yeah. that, that was a hell of a left hook to the prior appreciation I had of his character. It's like, what do you want me to get out of this guy? I mean, previously you've set him up as being your you know, over, possibly overly smart Sherlock Holmes character with a rough and tumble edge. And now you're throwing in he's also a sex trafficker. It's like, okay. Not sure what you want me to think of him yet, but you've given me a very complex portrait. And you can't even say that he's doing it because he doing it for the money because he even establishes he's not being paid yet. And uh, for the for the sex trafficking and and you know I guess uh, Hugo, like any good entrepreneur, says you will reap the benefits later. It's coming. You've got percentages. I'm giving you percentages. You have heard they hear that from entrepreneurs. You yeah. get percentages later. I think that's kind of what Hugo's doing here. But I can tell you that the entire scene disinterested me. Again, show doing too much too fast. You could have saved this for episode two and it would have been better. I would have had a better sense of these characters if you'd give me time to actually breathe a bit. Yep. Agreed. And then we got to a very bizarre scene. Um, this is it. I mean, you talk about putting way too much. This this guy, Dr. Edmund uh, This Hague. is so over the top. This is practically a parody. I've seen this in we- the Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I have seen more convincing versions of this in, like, you know, the town version of their little, like, Halloween house of horror kind of thing. This this is, I've seen better versions of that done in those kind of just impromptu uh, madhouse for children to walk in on Halloween than this ridiculously tropey, over-the-top scene of this mad scientist Dr. Madden. Yeah, I expected them all to just sort of, like, break out in song and be like, it's Sweeney Todd, like, you know, like, oh, God. like, like... <laughs> It was, uh, was, it was, you and your love of musicals continually catches me off guard, man. (laughs) It was very Sweeney Todd for me, but I I can tell you that I, um, man, did this not need to be in this episode. 
they, gratuitous this in every is, sense. Um, I mean, obviously what's going on here is that there is a doctor. I don't know how much he's involved with Masson. I would I would anticipate somewhat with involved with Masson or at least the ruling class in some way. And his uh, he's, he's purportedly doing experiments on the on the touch to to try to figure them out. But really, what he's doing um, is uh, just torturing them. Obviously, I mean, we get it. We we get enough in the scene to figure out what's going on. It's just like if you're going to introduce that element that there's a there's another danger to the touched, which are these weird medical experiments that are going on that this Dr. Edmund Haig is is doing. Like, just give it to me later and, and get let it breathe a little. It was just you really didn't need to tack it on to the end of this first season here or first the, episode here. The fan theory I get out of this is that he's affiliated with the Madhouse because that's the only other medical institution that we've gotten yet. And they've shown several times that image of the car that was hauling off Malady previously. And if that's the case, he's notably operating on one of the, you know, attackers that we saw that was trying to steal um, the Babel girl. I for, I'm already forgetting her name. The one that speaks lots of languages. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Myrtle. Um, Myrtle. Myrtle, Myrtle, yeah. He notably seems to be operating on one of those guys because the guy he's operating on has that same kind of weird mask-like face thing going on. So if he's connected with both of those groups, and I'm assuming Malady's still connected with that, and if your theory is right that all of this is in some way connected back to Lord Masson then is all of this essentially an elaborate false flag? Are they effectively, you know, putting the touched forward as being more dangerous than they actually are by, you know, creating these kind of touched murderers and assassins so that they can generate national outrage and, you know, government control and effect so that they can better control or eliminate this population? Is this the vast conspiracy this entire show is going to be built on? I don't know. That would... I, I, it's, it's possible you can link those parts together. Maybe. It's no, nowhere near enough to really go on yet. Yeah, yeah, very. I mean, it's very possible, but I, I, all I do know for sure is that they, they, they needed to not jam this into the end of this episode. Absolutely. Uh, I got to a scene in the street, and Penance is approaching Amalia, who I guess um, after the whole scene with Malady, then just gets in like a bar fight. Like it seems <laughs> it's like she like. wanted to hurt somebody. Yeah, it just seems like she wants to fight because she's like, well, she's fighting. These poor guys are like, God knows, like they're walking away from her, like talking to Penance, like, good Lord, can you do something with this lady? And Penance is like, what's going on? And it, and then the lady's like, you know, uh, Amalia's like, well, they started it. No, actually, I started it. Like, <laughs> and did you notice also what Penance did too? She's walking past them. She like what? She's like, is this is that your friend? You got to go deal with her. She hands them something. And it's a flashbang that blows up and knocks them out. I hope just knocks them out. Oh yeah, she did. Yeah, she did get. Yeah, she messed them up. Yeah, a little bit of a like a grenade type thing there. I yeah. don't know what was going on. Um, and I don't know if that's like a for, like like is it a Men in Black type thing? Is it gonna like I, I, mess I with their memory? I, I don't. I truly don't know yet how much the show wants me to take the technology seriously as something that could actually exist in 1899, or if we're just going full sci-fi. I don't know yet. Well, it looks like we're really flirting with going full sci-fi. Right I think now. we're doing, I think this is going to be, you know how like when, and this just drives a lot of people crazy who know the genre when you say fantasy sci-fi, like, mm -hmm. you know, someone like George R. R. Martin would scream at you and go, those are very, I think this might be fantasy sci-fi. I think it might yeah. be both. Um, well, but like, anyway. It's like Star Wars is fantasy sci-fi. That's what it is. That's the kind of thing it's going with. This, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Amalia explains um, she got in a fight and she didn't win. Uh, Malady, Malady has the girl he established. It's Mary Brighton. 
Well, I guess says that Malady won't kill her, at least not right away. So they have time. Penance points out she's using her time in a very interesting way. Penance low-key starting to be one of my favorite characters in the verbal verbal punches that she's got. She's thrown a few this uh, this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Penance then marvels at uh, Mary's singing. Quote, potential line of the episode. Mary's song, reaching right into me, telling me that, that I'm here. I belong here. And you. And... All of us that's touched, we're woven into the fabric of the world, and we're meant to be as we are. We find Mary, we get her singing, they all come to us, they'll be safe. They won't be safe. Less lonely then, and that's a start. And I think that's also a really important line, because it seems to be embodying not necessarily the values that the show is going to be fighting with, but the plot direction of the show. It's like, if you need a quick little TV guide block summary of where the plot's going to be going for the next few episodes, I think she just said it. Yeah, and I th- yeah, it's probably got it. Anyway, we'll talk about it. But anyway, then we get music as the camera pans out from Amalia and Penance. Looks like it's going to be an easy episode. And whoop, here we go. We're back to the first scene of the episode, flashback scene. And then we get the spaceship. Which is my favorite scene of the episode. I really like this scene. I like, like the spaceship. I like the music that's played with it. I like the reactions of the characters. I like that there's no dialogue. I like that the spaceship is entirely unexplained, for at least for right now, and we're just left to kind of put it together. This is a good scene. This is one of the scenes that gives me hope for the series that this is well-crafted, subtle filmmaking. I say subtle as a giant alien spaceship flies over and breaks apart. And drops magic fairy dust that makes people special. It's a different kind of subtle. Work with me. (laughs) But I have this scene I quite liked. This I found very interesting, and it gave me the kind of, you know, hopes and investment that we thrive on of where it wanted me to know more and it wanted me to ponder. And I did after I saw it. Yeah. So what happens here? There's no, there's no dialogue. What happens is there is a, what looks like a magic spaceship, not magic, maybe alien spaceship flies through, drops some, drops something out into the, into the, into the atmosphere. It comes down and starts hitting people. We've seen hits Mary in the throat very Mm -hmm. noticeably. Um, noticeably, Augustus gets hit too. Like the side of the face that. too, right? Augustus gets hit. Now, Augustus is there with the with the group of people who seem to be marveling at the folks who were touched. So that it raises an interesting possibility, Spencer, that Augustus might be touched and might not know it. And I think a further thing that supports that is Mary's abilities. Like we talked about, that kind of weird, almost like the abyss kind of energy flow that was connecting and running between various people. Notably, Augustus appeared to be hit by that, too. And it yeah. seemed to be only going to people that we know are touched. So I think we've got a couple data points to really ponder this now. So I think we just, like, thank everybody for, for listening to the podcast. I think we just gave you something. You're going to get a reveal here in the next couple episodes that Augustus is actually touched. It's going to be very surprising to the casual fan, but not you, ladies and gentlemen, because you listen to you. the Never's More podcast and we have informed you. And it's also interesting, too, because it it is an utter rebuttal to Lord, was it Lord Masson's uh, prior statement that nobody in the nobility or established leadership has been touched. Augustus seems like he's pretty well-to-do. If he's not, yep. you know, full upper-level gentry, he's at least a lower-level kind of aristocrat kind of thing. So he seems to be running counter to what is the established theory for how this works or doesn't. Well, Hugo does describe him as like not like the like the little red riding hood, right, of the ruling class, right? He's not too <laughs> hot, not too cold. Like he's kinda like right in the middle. Yes. Um and he also seems to be very beta, so maybe that that's playing into it a little bit, you know, kind of been kicked around his whole life kind of deal. 
Um, we it certainly have, see that Lavinia kicks him around. It may also be the case that Lord Masson and gang are just lying. That 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 that, that it is, is more evenly spread that the various lord lords have the abilities too. They're just hiding it for their own reasons. Yeah. So well, I think we're going to get that reveal here in the next couple episodes that Augustus has actually touched. He's got some sort of turn that he doesn't know about yet. But anyway, back to the back to the scene. Um, we see um, it looks like so there's a very interesting scene with Lord Mastin. It looks like he does not get hit noticeably, mm-hmm. but it does look like maybe his daughter gets hit. And it looks like when she gets hit, it hurts her. It looks because like she, she seems to die. Yeah, it looks like she just straight up drops dead, and it's one of the few moments of emotion we see out of him otherwise, because he runs over an abject whore and starts cradling what appears to be either her fallen form or even corpse. Um, at the same time, as the ship seemingly breaks apart, and everybody goes back to normal-ish. So that's another thing we're giving you, folks. We're giving you Augustus actually has um, some sort of uh, turn. We're going to find out about it later. We're also going to find out that Lord Gilbert Masson doesn't just dislike the turns because yeah. of the turns. We're going to find out he doesn't like them because he is going to equate that phenomenon, whatever happened three years ago, with the death of his daughter. So that there's something more there uh, for Lord Masson. I'm very with you, and I like adding that aspect to his character. As much as I enjoy, you know, like Disney kind of villains that are just evil for evil's sake, that can be a lot of fun. For particularly human characters and what is meant to be a very human plot involving modern, you know, kind of tensions and modern um, elements of strife and conflict, having a character, having a, a, what is, a person is being portrayed as being the villain, being multifaceted and having reasonable, even if they are ultimately flawed reasons for doing what he does, adds an element of fun and interest to him. It portrays them as, as a much more completed character. And I don't think they're right in Lord Gilbert Masson as a mindlessly evil character. I mean, because they wouldn't have given him that line where he says, like, hey, I'm too old and I've seen too much of it to hate change. You know, basically that's what he says. That's not a line you give somebody who's just abjectly evil. So my thought is he's going to be a little bit more nuanced. And and you're going to get this later. I think you're going to get that he's nuanced. um, But his dislike of the, the, the event that happened and the turns specifically are tied to the death of his daughter. Um then we we see well Amalia who is who had look it looks like she jumped off the bridge it looks like she tried to kill herself mm-hmm. um, the the little magic fairy dust does go into the water it mm-hmm. hits Amalia I, I don't know if it pulls her out or if she pulls herself out or something but she gets out of the water and we see her boom boom arm up arm up mm-hmm. Amalia is uh, is alive um, yeah. Again, biblical comparisons of elements of Lazarus, elements of being, you know, reborn through reborn through baptism, kind of thing. There's a lot. There's a lot of various religious comparisons we're getting in this show. Cut to the orphanage, and we see the girls sleeping. Amalia on the ground again. Again, she. We all we've seen here suggests she is not a bed sleeper. She sleeps on the she sleeps on the floor. I don't know what to tell you. It doesn't look like she's doing it. You know how a lot of people sleep on the on the ground because it helped their back. You know they lay flat. She's not even laying flat. She's laying on her side. Doesn't make a lake of sense to me. Um, and I think that's it. I think we're done. I think so we're done. Done with the recap. Before we go into segments, if you had to give a score of the first episode of the show out of ten, what would you give it? Whew. One to ten. Ten being ten being like ten being the pristine pilot. 10 being the kind of thing of where this is a show that will stick with me years after the show is done. One being, I would not watch this if, it, if, if Spencer wasn't making me watch the rest of it with him. Okay, so I'm going to say um, 
keep keep coming back ladies and gentlemen keep keep watching the nevers keep coming back to the podcast we want you to listen we want you to be in this with us i really think we're gonna have a lot of fun going through the show together that being said six and a half six you? and a half I, I think you're even kinder than i would be i would probably give it a give, give it a four four and a half at this point right now um i think it's got some elements which could prove fascinating and my overall opinion of the episode may improve once it's paired with some other ones but for right now the writing comes across as kind of mediocre, surprisingly, honestly, mediocre, really, given the pedigree of the people that are writing for it. Uh, the plot is just overhashed. Too much shit, too fast. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Eh? Wait a second. On the writing, I understand that Buffy was very famous. That was a very popular show. Yes. Are we going to say the writing was good on Buffy? Uh, the individual dialogue has now been just referred to as <laughs> Joss Whedon's style, but the overall plotting, the overall kind of working in of themes, has actually gotten a lot of critic credit for being surprisingly subtle and for surprisingly multi-layered. I will also defend Firefly as being actually Firefly a lot was better. really good, but that I'm not sure the writing was great. The little on the nose. The the dialogue itself between the characters is a it's a bit of a mixed bag. I quite appreciate it, but the characterizations and how we got into them is quite excellent on that show. This one it is in part just because there's too much there. Which characters do you have a sense of, like a full rounded impression of yet? Anybody yet at all, or even even a hope of having one necessarily? I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on Gilbert Masson. Yeah, especially considering that the scene we saw with his daughter, I think very I, important. I've there. got a pretty good handle on Horatio. Yeah, I think he's going to be the sassy sidekick to Amalia, who also also there's some sexual tension there, um, who is super clutch with the healing power every once in a while. That's what I'm, I think we're going to get. I, I don't think uh, that Horatio is ever going to be more than a secondary character, though. I don't picture no, him as either. being one of the leads. And Masson no, seems right. like he's going to be at least probably painted in the role of a villain or a character that we think is a villain before he transitions as into a you know reasonable authority figure at the end or something. Yeah. None of these are really protagonists, though. Like, okay, I don't have a handle on Amalia or Penance. I mean, if, I, I, and I, I think that Malady's a one-note character right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't. I, no, I don't really think I have a, a good handle on the on the protagonist. No. Well, I mentioned the writing. Let's discuss some aspects of the writing we liked because there were a few very quotable moments I feel on this show. And as we have, I don't know if you've set this up yet, but you are the god emperor of this particular segment. We will both offer terms, we'll both offer suggestions, but you will pick which is the best line of the episode. That's right. Line of the episode, ladies and gentlemen, I and I alone select line of the best line of the episode. I am in pursuit of line of the episode. And Spencer will give me some um, some recommendations, some nominations, but I will ultimately choose. So, Spencer, do you have some nominations for best line of the episode? I do. Would you like to go round robin? Because it seems like you had a couple recommendations yourself, too. Uh, mine aren't, yeah, mine aren't written super easy for me to see in my notes, <laughs> so I might be too slow for a round robin. But you go, and I'll jump in when I can. Sounds fine. Uh, what I liked early, and this, again, seems to be a key theme they're going with, neither right nor wrong, being touched is not a defect in character. A good early lines seem to embody a lot of their perspective about what is the nature of their abilities, even when it serves as a bit of a handicap. Um, this is weird for us, too. I think you have to say that one. I mean, obviously. Um, uh, only a blind man measures the length of a blade by what's in his belly. That's from Lord Masson. And that, that took me as a good description of what his perspective is on the nature of the touched. That we can't wait for them to actually become a thing, to become an active threat. By then, it will be too late. We will already have been gutted. Sex Club is just 
That's just flirting on a much scarier level. It's a weird damn line, but I like it. It's amusing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, good line about Frank Mundy. Uh, he could beat a confession out of a headstone. That's a fun way of describing what the man does, and I like the kind of implications that one can draw from that. Um, um, I, go ahead. One between uh, Hugo and Augustus. Uh, I th- he's referring to the crows that Augustus is just really heavily obsessed with. I think they are here as a Greek chorus to your distemper. Has no plot relevance one at all, but I thought I found it a good turn of phrase. Yeah. Uh, you do like a good turn of phrase. I like You're a, a couple fan. turns of phrase every now and then. Um, one uh, I already mentioned so you, I shouldn't. Yeah. So I shouldn't ask how I'm going to die. No, but one can safely assume it will involve a French word. Pretty good. <laughs> Just because it's shitting couple, on that guy Hugo, I don't like. <laughs> there's a couple good ones from that conversation. Uh, one, so I'll do a full one. I'm old and I've seen too much change to fight against the tide, but chaos is not change. Shouting for recognition does not make a people worthy of it. There is a harmony to our world that is worth preserving. And then, as I understand it, a harmony is made up of different voices sounding different notes. And back to Lord Basson, yes, one is always above the other. As said, this seems to be embodying the tension between characters that's going to be the focus of this entire show. So it seems like a very important line. Yeah, and then, and then um, do you have any more? Because I just have the last one. I think the last one needs to be repeated. Uh, well, I think, uh, I think we can go ahead and award it. That's a drum roll, ladies and gentlemen. Best line of the episode, episode one of the Never, the premiere episode of the Never's Here and the Never's More podcast is Mary's song, reaching right into me, telling me that, that I'm here, I belong here, and you, and all of us that's touched. We've woven into the fabric of the world, and we are meant to be as we are. We find Mary, we get her singing, they'll all come to us, they'll be safe. There it is! It's the example of a line which is really on the nose. It really feels like it's telling us what the nature of the plot is, how this is all going to be coming together, various people with diverse backgrounds, the purpose of common unity and common assistance. And yeah, I think it's an important line, because it's very much telling the audience what this show is going to be and where the plot's going to go from here. So our OG listeners out there that followed us on the GOT Guy Questions podcast, the Mango Talks TV podcast, you will know that during this segment, I typically like to pick things that are, sometimes I'll choose a very basic line. So like the actual line is basic, but I like to have things that have like bigger meaning to the story, um, you know, that, that, that kind of sort mm-hmm. of encapsulate part of the story that, that's it's more than just a dialogue that we're seeing on the screen. Um, kind of hard to do on episode one, season one. We I don't, don't really know yet. I don't know anything. So yeah. I have chosen something that's a little on the nose, but only because that is the one thing I can actually firmly say I know that they are going for more than just the dialogue there. They're trying Agreed. to set up, they're trying to tell us, hey, this is kind of what this show's going to be and this is where it's going to go and, and this is, you know, anyway, whatever. That's okay. why I picked it. That's best line of the episode. Spencer, what's our next segment? Next segment is character arcs, which again, first episode, don't know necessarily much where they're going to go, but we've been given a few hints for at least a few of the characters about what is going to be the nature of the reveal of their abilities, the nature of, where, of what the, how they're coming to terms with themselves, where they're going to be going farther in the plot, and so we get to decide now, and this is going to change constantly, it's kind of like a horse race, which of the character arcs we like best. Do you have one at this point that you are either most invested in or most interested to see where it goes? I mean, very obviously for me, it's Amalia because I, I spent probably, if you pull, if you clip it all together, 
You may have an industrious listener out here who does it. If you clip it all together, I might have spent 15 minutes trying to t- trying to talk about what her actual turn is yeah, during the course of that recap. I went back to it, back to that well over and over and over again because I, I don't know what it is. I'm interested in it. Um, uh, I, I can't. I, I have my thoughts, and I feel like I I had like a a um, a guess as to what her turn was that I got more evidence for as the as the episode kept going right like with the especially the fighting scene with malady and the chasing with malady like i felt like i got some i got some evidence that she actually has some brute strength that maybe she's hiding a little bit so mm-hmm. right now the character arc i'm most interested in is amalia but not it might sound a little heartless not because of the failed suicide thing or, or all that or the husband <laughs> who's dead or whatever yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah background we'll hear about that i'm sure what i'm interested in is um understanding Amalia's turn and is she being upfront with everybody about what her turn is and who knows truly what her turn is and how is she going to, um, you know, use that turn, leverage that turn in, in what she's trying to accomplish in later episodes. And will she actually show everybody? Will everybody get a sense of, of, of truly what her powers are? Yes or no. That right now is what I'm most interested in. Spencer, do you? I feel the need to pick somebody different because Amalia, Amalia is a great choice. Amalia seems like I think we'd agree Amalia is going to be the main character of this story, at least what we're seeing so far. And I think what, so. What yeah. We're seeing from the advertising. Lead, lead actress Emmy Nod, right there. You're four and a half. Is she going to get? Is she going to limp there? She's going to get to it. I'm willing to give her time. As said, I, I'm often a lot harsher the material we watch than you are in, ter- in terms of my initial response. A four yes. and a half for me is not that bad. There's been a lot of four and a halves we've watched before. Um, but for my mind, I mean, just to pick somebody different, I think the, the, a character that we have an arc that we've actually seen relatively complete aspects of even motive, Lord Masson. I'm kind of yeah, curious yeah, to see where he one. goes. I like villains. I like to see what they're done with their arcs. And for him, we have what appears to be a clear motive. We have a clear means and we have already me pondering out how he could be linked to a vast, a more vast conspiracy. I find that interesting and I'm curious to see where that goes. Yeah. Um, did you ever, um, like, growing up, like, hear the phrase booby prize? I've heard of that phrase, yes. I actually don't know All what right. it means, though. I just had to Google it to make sure it wasn't racist. I don't think it's racist. I just heard it. Gr- I, I grew up in the South, so, like, some of the things I heard as a kid, I'm always, like, <laughs> yeah. a scared. Scared might be, like, there might be a tinge to it that's not great. I don't think this is from a quick Google search. Booby prize is the thing you give to the last place finisher. Um, so I'll tell a quick story. When I was, uh, I, I, I knew when I was a kid, I knew my family, a family friend of ours was the hall of fame pitcher, catfish hunter, who was a, a pitcher for the Oakland A's and, and Yankee, New York Yankees. He was a hall of fame pitcher. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to play baseball. I didn't want to play baseball. My parents pushed me to play baseball. I finally said, yes, I'm going to play baseball. Finally. Yes. Team won zero games. We went over 12 Spencer. Lost mm-hmm. every single game. My dad <laughs> said, famously walked into the dugout and said, well, you all get a booby prize. And we were like, what? A booby prize? Because we were all down in the line. Well, he had gotten signed baseballs from Ken Jim Catfish Hunter for everybody on the team. That was our booby prize. Oh, So wow. that's how I know the term booby prize. It's kind of famous in my family. Um, the booby prize that I got for going to 0-12. I think we need to introduce the booby prize for this segment, Spencer. I'm we need per- to give... We talked about our favorite character arc. Let's give the booby prize. Who is the least favorite character arc? And I think I got an answer here. 
You, you went first last time, so I'll go first this time. Because I think Fire let's, away. let's keep it that we can't pick the same person. Because that's going to be fun, too. Ooh, you're, you, I hope you don't take my guy off the board. Go ahead. I'm not going to take your guy off the board. Uh, I'm going to pick one. I'm going to go after a major character at this point. Because I think that it, it's more meaningful to go after a major character whose arc I'm just really not invested in. Penance, I care nothing about her character Whoa. at this point where she goes. What? Penance gets... What? I, I am in no way invested in her. We talked about her abilities being just gibberish. We wow. talked about she has no characterization of herself so far, despite being you know portrayed as being a co-lead. I, I mean, I have nothing to go on when it comes to her in terms of what her motivations are or any aspect of her abilities are. I find what how they've described her, her, her how she is touched of what her particular um, turn is, either nonsensical or just frustrating. I don't particularly like so far how they've worked in her, you know, superior technology abilities. It kind of takes me out of the show. So yeah, Penance is the one right now that gets the booby prize. I, at this point, and that could rapidly change, have been given nothing that I like about where they're going with their character or are invested in it. Wow, I can't, you blew me away there with the Penance choice, only because I think she's going to get like the third most dialogue probably of anybody in the show. I, um, it's a horse and race, I do th- they can catch up or change, but right and now. And I do think that that Penance, what we're going to get from her is, um, she's going to be your, she's going to be your Alfred, right? She's going to be her Batman Q needs a new toy. Um, or no, hold on, no, not Alfred, who, who is Q. from the Q you, division, okay. yeah. I'm with you, <laughs> know, I'm with you, I know what we, you're saying. We know each this is this may be bad for the listener. You know you know me so well. When I screw something up, you like go with it. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know what he meant. He went to um, <laughs> same same way of like same way of like. But that's that's what it's gonna be, right? Yeah, like, but that's Amali not a is the Batman. Abali is the Batman, and she's gonna come in and be like, oh well, I've like I've like tesselated some new thing up here. Here you go, like. Man, you, um, you you worked in three different things there. You went James Bond to Batman, and he ended on Elon Musk. I'm not, I I know what you're going with, but. I, you go in a few different places. <laughs> Fly around with the references on on this podcast. But, yeah, but again, that's, that's what she's going to be, though. But that's an su- entirely supporting role. That's not your own arc. That's backing up somebody else's arc. You, I mean, I'm I I'm not saying you're wrong. You you did you did start to convince me a little bit. Um, I think we've got better we got better folks I'll here. Go, I'm purposely um, going controversial. Big choice. I'm curious who you're going with. Is probably a better choice though. Hugo, Hugo, don't care about Hugo at all. Scratch him. If you just cut him from future episodes, I won't even be mad about the lack of continuity. I'll just be pleased that you did it. Get him out of here. You are going to be so pissed because he's not going to change and we're going to see him all the damn time. I'm calling that now. Oh, Yank Hugo, please. Not interested in... He got like five scenes, by the way. He got way too many scenes in this episode. And I didn't care for not near one of them. Um, so booby prize uh, for episode one is Penance and Hugo. But, but, but my kind of runners up would be Hugo was gonna be my runner my runner up just because he's the most utterly frustrating, annoying character in the entire damn show so far, and I have utterly can predict right now that's not gonna change. And then for character that I have no idea if they're gonna do anything with other than users a prop. Do you think they're honestly gonna do anything with? Um, oh, I got her name written out here. Uh, the the tall girl the the one the, the one the one that's super tall. Oh yeah, uh, I don't know what her name is, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Prim, Prim, Primrose Chataway. Do you think that's a, that, that, that they're gonna have any plot point with that character at all, or is she just window dressing? Yeah, Penance is gonna be in her in her studio. She's gonna be like, man, I'm gonna make this new like vest of of armor, impenetrable armor for Amalia, but I can't quite reach the top of the shelf. 
no, I, <laughs> I think. Oh, they're good. Uh, yes, yes. You, the writing is so bad they could do it. That's my point here. You are. Ha- they could be something as hack as that. I truly believe you just briefly hacked into Amalia's abilities right there and saw the future because I can just see them doing that scene next episode of where she's like, got like, she's like super- reaching and then he, and then he, oh let me get that for you hey Primrose thank you <laughs> she's got Dad bringing down the cookies powers that's what, that's her abilities in the show no but like something of consequence it pro- I mean eventually you know the orphanage is going to get attacked. Obviously, yes. they set that up, and I think that Primrose will probably help in the defense of the orphanage. That's my guess. She'll go Hulk and defend 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 people around her, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, she'll be like the. Um, she'll be like, oh, you're not there yet. Oh, I almost hit you with a Harry Potter spoiler. Whoa! Careful, man. That's another man. Show of I'm ours. glad I caught myself. Oh, almost hit you with a Harry Potter spoiler. Okay, no, no, not gonna, not gonna go that route. Um, for those that don't know, Spencer's on a chapter by chapter reread of Harry Potter on a podcast here on Mango Talks podcast channel called Pottering Around. They are on the Goblet of Fire now, so the, Spencer mm-hmm. is not all the way through. Almost hit him with a spoiler. I had to pull it back. I appreciate your diligence, there, sir. Um, um, well, so what? Uh, so that was the. So we've got best character arc, Amalia mm-hmm. and Lord Gilbert. Booby prize for best character arc. Uh, Hugo and Penance. I'm happy with these choices. I'm very curious to see what other horses will surpass them as we go through the show. Because it's still very early. Character, We could fall in love with all kinds of characters and other ones can frustrate us to no end. But I think that wraps up our material. Uh, where are your thoughts going into episode two? Are you hopeful? Are you nervous? Where, where, where do you stand at this point? Here's what I hope. I hope that even though they had Joss Whedon, right? Even though they had a big name, I hope that they were, I don't, I don't know the, the history of this show, but I hope that they, that this did not get straight to a, a series order. I hope that what we were seeing was a pilot that they made in the hopes that they could get a full season order. Why do I say that? Because they jammed a lot of crap in here. Mm-hmm. And I hope that they did that because they were just trying to impress folks, the, X, the HBO suits, they were trying to make the series happen. And I hope that it slows down a little bit I'm in the, in, right there in the next you. episodes. And I, I think it might, right? Like, I mean, maybe maybe they that maybe that's a pilot. Maybe we're just dealing with a pilot, a little disjointed, a little difficult, trying to throw trying to put a lot into it. I hope it slows down a little bit. I hope that, you know, we saw I'm gonna just tick through the characters that we saw. We saw Amalia, Dr. Edmund Haig, Frank Mundy, Hugo Swan, Lavinia, Lord Gelbert, Mary, Malady, Penance. I hope that we see eighty percent of those or seventy five percent of those characters that yep. we saw in the next episode. I hope they condense it a little bit. We, um, yeah, go ahead. Because we actually talked about that with Game of Thrones in later seasons, that they started to get a little bit scattershot and just trying to address every character every episode and how it started diluting the material. And I feel like they've started that way, but like you, I'm hopeful that now they've given us all the pieces on the board, now they can focus on little aspects of the game rather than focusing on the entire playing field. I also hope that, like, in an effort to, like, be, like, eye-popping in the first episode, there's a lot of fight scenes. I hope they slow that. We don't need as many fight scenes. We just yeah. don't need that in the show. I would I would legitimately have found it more interesting if what, you know, uh, Penance told us about how this isn't normal for us, if they'd focused on the actual normal in this, in this episode and the next few episodes, I would have found that more interesting. I would have found that a much more subtle burn and they could build to the fight scenes in later episodes. Or even just hint at Amalia's fighting abilities until we actually see them come into play later on when the tension actually has a chance to, you know, organically build. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I that's my, my two main hopes. I don't, I, you know, we can... And we're not quite at the point where I'm going to start doing plot predictions, but I just hope it slows down a little bit, and I hope we see less characters. What about you? 
I'm, I'm right there with you. I think now that we've seen everybody, now that we've had at least two quotes that summarize the overall plot, I hope they're content enough that we understand where we are and what we're doing and who everyone else is that's part of this, that they can feel comfortable just focusing on a few individual story arcs each episode. That we know the characters. You've told us the characters' names. We got a list. You don't have to show us every single one, every episode, and everything that they're doing. Spend 20 minutes on something rather than spending five minutes on it, and I'll get a lot more out of it and appreciate it more. Like you, I'm hopeful that now they've done the pilot, and pilots are often jumbled and do maybe too many things, that we can take our time going on forward the next five episodes, and then come the second half, who even knows what they might be doing? Yeah, different show. No Hugo this time. No Joss Whedon. They're pulling Hugo. That's my hope. No. Here we go. Fingers crossed. You said yourself <laughs> that Hugo is the mandatory contractual character from HBO. <laughs> they need somebody that provides a means to an end for boobs. And Hugo's obviously that. Oh, man. You're probably right. Okay. That wraps up our coverage of episode one of The Nevers. Thank you for joining us here on The Nevers More Podcast. We will be back with you next week. You can check out all of our podcasts on mangumtalks.com. We appreciate you hanging in there with us. We'll see you next week for episode two. See you.